Hi, Tanya. Hi, Diana. How are you? I'm exhausted. How are you? <laughs> Weirdly exhausted as well. <laughs> okay, so what are we going to do today? I am talking to Ray Connolly. Ray is a journalist who was so involved with the Beatles that he's he's like almost a character in the Beatles story, you know, so he's really interesting to talk to. He's also one of the few journalists who seems to have liked all of the Beatles. And he knew John Lennon and Paul McCartney fairly well and seems to really like both, which is extremely rare in the Beatles world, you know, that, right. that tends to be incredibly partisan. Right. Yeah. So the majority of Ray's experiences is with John Lennon and Yoko Ono after the breakup. And he spent a lot of time with them from 1969 onwards because he was one of the trusted journalists they allowed into their inner sanctum. And he remained there until John's death. So he has an informed opinion about Lennon and Ono. That's interesting. So he knew John the best, though. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, he wrote a book about John, but he also knew Paul McCartney's father and brother quite well. um, And he was friendly with Paul himself. So he has a larger perspective on some of the interpersonal dynamics of the band. Now, of course, this is Ray's perspective, but at least he knew the major players and was able to observe them in in action. He sounds like a credible source. He seems like a lovely man. And, you know, he just got over a very long battle with COVID. He was in the hospital for over five months, um, but he emerged healthy and apparently he's newly energized, So, which is great to hear. So I'm really lucky to be able to talk to Ray. Right. Well, no kidding. Uh, I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Well, me too. So here we go. Here we go. Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of talking to Ray Connolly, who is a journalist, author, award-winning screenplay writer, and author of many books, but specifically two publications that I love and are very relevant to the show, which is the Ray Connolly Beatles Archive and the biography, Being John Lennon, A Restless Life. Now, Ray also knew the Beatles personally, having met them in 1967, and having spent quite a bit of time hanging around Apple, and then later was one of the um, journalists that was really favored by John and Yoko, so he spent a fair amount of time with them and got to know them quite well. So I am thrilled to have you here today. So thanks for being here, Ray. Was was that all of that um, true and appropriate? It's all absolutely true and appropriate, yeah. Um, okay, uh, good. But you should have mentioned, which I, I will now mention, is Sorry Boys, You Failed the Audition, oh, which, is, right. which is my version of what could have happened to the Beatles had George Martin turned them down in 1962. I wanted it to sound like them speaking. Anyway, people seem very happy with it, and I'm very happy with it. (laughs) It was worth doing. It began life as a radio play, and then on the BBC. And then I thought, well, you know, radio plays come and go, and they get played a few times. But I want it to be around forever, so I've written it as a book now. So you you say you can see Paul as a teacher, but he can't be suppressed. Eventually he does become a songwriter. 
Yeah. So that that's inherent in him. Yes, it was yeah. always there, and um, I, I'm just waiting to hear his new album. I'm quite thrilled that he's he now has this trilogy. It's very nice to have kicked off his career, you know, with McCartney one and sort of like these these periods in his life. He says that he wasn't planning to do this, that he he had the opportunity or he took the opportunity to to make this. I mean, I guess the guy can't stop working or be still for too long. No, he just can't. I mean, Paul has always been a workaholic and he just loves it. And I think this drove John mad actually, that Paul was always Paul was always on to the next thing before the last one came out. Um, <laughs> I can imagine that would be horrible to work with. Yeah, it would. I mean, he used to say, oh, God, you know, before I had chance, Paul's got another five songs for the next album, and I've not started yet. He'd complain about that, you know, but, you know. That yeah. was the way they worked, but it, it was the way they worked was brilliant because they'd have their own ideas and work away on them and then present them to the other. And then the, the other would be a great editing process. I think that's what they, they all lacked when they went by themselves. There was no one there to say, yeah, it's all right, but it's not great. I think that we all need good editors. And John was a great editor for Paul and Paul for John, I think. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that, that that's the thing is that Paul, even George Martin says that, that Paul um, isn't able to tell which of his songs is great. No, I know. I remember him saying that. It was, yeah. He used to say, he'd come in with about five songs and he'd play them all. And I'd say, yeah, yeah, that's okay. Okay, okay. And that, that one, that's your hit. Go with that one. And he'd say, really? He'd say, yeah, that one. Paul never knew. Funny, isn't it, Rob? It is. It is. But, you know, I think anybody who works in something creative, you, you get attached to ideas. Yeah. I mean, you know, and he's so prolific that maybe he just comes out of him and he doesn't know. I mean, that's that's what I think he absolutely needed. And, and the role, like you said, that John provided for Paul. Yeah. I was going to mention, I'll never forget him playing Let It Be to me when we were at Abbey Road one night. I'd gone there to talk to Yoko. Um and John was finishing off Cry Baby Cry and remixing it. And then Paul turned up and John disappeared. And he took me into the band room and, and played a few rock and roll ones, like Lordy Miss Claudie and those sort of stuff. And then yeah. he said, what do you think of this one? And he played me this song, Let It Be. But he hadn't finished it, so he only had a few of the lyrics. Mother Mary comes to me, you know, and a bit more of that. And, and I thought, it was called Mother Mary, actually. And I thought, this, this is a wonderful song. It's just a wonderful song. And... Um, when it didn't come out on the next album, on the White Album, I asked Derek Taylor, what happened to Mother Mary? He didn't know what I was talking about. And I said, well, he's got this song called Mother Mary Comes to Me. Anyway, we didn't know until Let It Be came out. It went 18 months time, whatever it was. And um, I still think it's a fantastic song. Well, it's one of his masterpieces, yeah. I think. It was, yeah. But it, yeah. You know, there were so many of them. And it came so effortlessly. So I mean, it, He gave away so many songs. The, oh. the people had hits with, with his song. Anyway. Yeah. But he had, I mean, he like, I think he's still making wonderful music, but that level of genius and, and sort of like inspiration that he had, it was a pretty great run for him. Oh, it's incredible. Um, and, you know, most, most composers, I think Beethoven is the exception, most composers die young. They do their yes. best work when they're in their 20s and 30s. Um, and he yeah. may have done that. I don't know. Uh, yeah, you know, but I always think the next album, there'll be something on it. And I'll say, oh, yes, something like Waterfalls or, you know, 
any of those things off the first album. I thought the first album, I really liked it, uh, McCartney. Um, oh, yeah, I love that. And and you mentioned Waterfalls. I mean, that's, you know, that's 1980. And I think that Tug of War is still some inspired stuff. So that, you know, by the time that comes out, that means he's he's had a good run for 20 years at that point, you know, yeah. of of really brilliant work. And so I'm, and I think he continues to make brilliant work, but it's, first of all, it would be so hard for him to have a hit record in today's environment, but even even just that same level of inspiration as "Let It Be" and you know "Hey Jude" and the kind of the kind of work that is really the fabric of our culture. You know, yeah. it's interesting because I was going to talk to you about this later, but since we're on Paul and music right now, John said he was he he said he was a genius. You know, and he was kind of when he was talking to Wenner saying, you know, if yeah. if I'm not genius you know I, I don't i'm either crazy or genius and you know so i must be a genius maybe Paul, cra- maybe he's just crazy you know that's what i said to him maybe you're just crazy you know <laughs> and and you know and he partly was a little crazy but but i think paul is probably partly a little crazy for all of his like a normal guy i have to imagine there's a certain amount of craziness going on in paul's brain as well you know even though he comes across as normal and living a fairly you know unaffected life yeah i think sometimes it affects people's view of him artistically you know as in him saying i'm a normal guy you know there's this sort of these tropes yeah. of to be a, a genius, you must be crazy and suffering. And I think Paul's stance of being a normal guy almost undermines his image. It probably does a little bit, but I think it's rather a good thing, actually, because, you know, I've, I've known Paul for an awful long time. I don't know him very well anymore because we don't move in the same circles. But um, I spoke to his brother the other day. Well, he rang me up when he heard I'd been ill. And I was thinking, well, he does come from a very, very straight background. His dad was a lovely man. Um, I know his mum died. His dad was a lovely man. And so he was based in a, a very solid family, uh, a solid extended family. John had an extended family, but I don't think he really had that kind of loving world that Paul grew up in. You know, I think Mamie loved him in her way. But yes. she, was quite, she was quite demanding too. I mean, a lot of things about Mimi, people always say Mimi was this difficult woman. Well, she pretended to be difficult. She wasn't that difficult. She pretended it. Uh, and of course, she, she had this boy who was going nowhere, doing nothing, you know, and, and she was worried, you know, that it was her responsibility until he became famous. Uh, she, she couldn't see the sense in it. But I think it was George Harrison, or it may have been Paul, who said she could be difficult, but no, it's Paul. There was a lot of pretense there. It wasn't, she did love John. I mean, she, she did worship John. And it was difficult. What I found amazing was John never went back to see her when he left to go and live in America. And I found that really astonishing because he, he phoned her an awful lot and yet he never took the time to get on the plane and go and see his Aunt Mimi, who had done a lot for him. Very strange. But that, that was John, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, as much as I truly, absolutely love John, there's things about that period where I, I just think, it, you know, it's some of the, the, his relationships with like Julian and Cynthia at, at that period, I, I just think they're unfortunate. Yeah. You know what John was like? John would get it into, he had these passions. He'd get, he'd get interested in something for a very short time and then he'd move on. Maybe, I don't know what happened in the last five years. It's very hard to tell what was going on in, in, inside the Dakota because he wasn't talking to anybody much. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, I have a feeling, I get the sense that he didn't want to come back, you know, that there was a little bit of an emotional barrier or something with him coming back to the UK. Well, he wouldn't come back unless he had a hit. That was for sure. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like there was a little bit of a, uh, I, I don't know, feel wanting to come back and feel vindicated or, you know, maybe he left when he was feeling emotional and had some issue that he felt in his mind he needed to have accomplished when he came back. Yes. Um, he, I think he said, he, I know he said, he didn't sort of want to come back as a failure, having gone to America and not done very well. So, yeah. And Paul had done very well in the meantime. And so I think he had that hanging over him slightly. And also, you know, it, it built a new life for himself. He had Yoko and he had May Pang and he had a different world. I always think that John, I didn't, you know, all that stuff about feminism, I didn't really believe it, you know, because they didn't treat May Pang very well, he and Yoko. I think May's a lovely girl, a lovely woman. I love May Pang. Like her book provides yeah. so much insight into John. She's very nice. No. She's she's lovely. Yes. I, I met her before she was um, John's girlfriend because uh, she came over with Alan Klein. And uh, I met her down at Tittenhurst Park and then again at Apple. And then again, when I was next in New York for Bangladesh. And I remember thinking, what a lovely girl she was. And she was she was so energetic and so keen. And, and, and then suddenly, Yoko tells me she's gone off with John to live in Los Angeles. I thought, well, I can, I can see why. Because I found her attractive I, and I found a good friend. Oh, well, she was. And you know what? It's interesting because you look at pictures of John and May and they actually seem to have a chemistry just in terms of their body language. Yeah, I think John, so. Not to say that John and Yoko's relationship, you know, wasn't, it just, I think it was different, you know? Well, I, yeah, I've got to be careful what I say about Yoko. Um, I always felt that, um, well, at the end, you know, she was the manager. She was the, the wife. She was the mother, basically. She was running running the Dakota, all the people. And John sort of sat back and let her do everything, which in a way, uh, because he didn't have a manager anymore, but Yoko was good at it and she made him rich, all that. But I wonder whether they were as fond of each other as they actually made out. There you are. That's as far as I'll go with that. So we've done a 12-episode series on the breakup, called The Breakup Series, really diving into the breakup of the Beatles. And um, just because so many tropes started from that period, you know, uh, Paul was very quiet right after the breakup in terms of his, uh, you know, public appearances, and John and Yoko were everywhere, and they really dominated uh, the discourse, and they managed to drive the narrative and you know which to this day still exists and so we decided to go back and just say well how true are all of these issues you know and we find that there there's a lot of things that weren't true necessarily and so i'd like to ask you about some of those um, sure well we were in canada i they had gone to, to see um trudeau and he was staying in Ronnie Hawkins' house just outside of Toronto. And I went over to join him, brought some stuff with me that he wanted. He, he, he wanted to actually copy of the Daily Mirror in London, where there'd been a, a, a really vicious piece about him. And he was keen to read it. And I thought, and he laughed and laughed when he read it. He didn't care. You know, he sort of said, John Lennon is a madman. And he thought it was very funny. But yeah. uh, he suddenly said, come upstairs. I said, what? Because whenever he spoke to John privately, it was in his bedroom because that was the only place he could he could be sure he'd be on his own. Mm-hmm. So I went out there, and Yoko was with us, and he said, "I've something to tell you, but don't print it until I tell you." I said, "Okay, what is it?" 
have left the Beatles. And my first thought was, oh, God, no, don't break the Beatles. <laughs> because I was a Beatles fan. And my, yeah. my thought was, I mean, two things. One, he doesn't really mean it. He'll, he'll have second thoughts. Because he did have second thoughts about lots of things. You know, he didn't. Yeah. I thought, he'd change his mind later on. Paul. And then I thought, well, I don't even want this to happen. So anyway, I said, <laughs> oh, well, I won't do it because, you know, He'd paid for my flight over on Air yep. Canada, first class. I'd never been first class before. And um, he wanted me there. And uh, so I, I didn't write it. And maybe I should have done But I didn't want to write it because I didn't want the Beatles to break up. But then he and Yoko were going on this sort of rampage of publicity all the time. They were. They were. And I think Paul laid low in Scotland, hoping he'd change his mind thinking yeah. he probably will change his mind because he's, he's done that often before. But I think that in a way it was made up for him when Paul wrote that letter, a questionnaire that he answered himself. And in yeah. it, he said, I have no plans to work with the Beatles anymore. Well, I got that the day before it came out and I read it and thought, well, he's not saying he's left the Beatles. Paul never said that. And so I read it and I should have run with it on that evening on the day before. But I thought, well, no, I'll keep to the embargo. I'm a good journalist. I'll do that. But overnight, the Daily Mirror ran a story saying, Paul quits Beatles headlines. And, yeah. But he'd never said that. And I wonder if that sort of forced him to make a stand because he rang me a couple of weeks later. and We went out to lunch together and he was saying how, how upset he'd been when he'd seen the headline because he didn't expect all that fuss to, to happen. And in a way, it was a phony headline because he hadn't ever said it. He never said it. And he didn't say it in my piece either. What he did say was, it would be very hard for us to get together again after what's happened. I think he was probably thinking, well, I'll make this album. But then they all fell out over when it came out and all that nonsense. But I just think that he was probably hoping in the back of his mind, John will change his mind. And in a way, John didn't because it, it you know, he'd been kind of forced into it by Paul. And John hated the idea that Paul would be able to break up the Beatles when he, he was the one who started them. So... You know. Right. Well, there seems to be a lot of, you know, we see writers that saying that, well, Paul, you know, should have left it to John, you know, and as an outsider, I think, well, Paul was an equal partner, you know, one, one would that, think, I mean, get maybe respect for the person who started it, but Paul was a co-leader of the Beatles. So, and, and as you said, I, you know, he did not say that he was quitting the Beatles. It was spun incorrectly. And it, then it seemed to just spin out of control. I agree. I agree with that. It was it got out of control, and then all of a sudden lawyers are involved. And but I remember going to New York in 1970. Was it 71? I forget. Whatever it was, you know, it, it all gets a bit vague now. To be honest, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I can't remember stuff that happened five years ago. So well, it's a long time ago. And John, he'd written a letter to Paul, and he's going to give it to me. Then he said, "No, I'm not going to give it to you. I want you to tell Paul to give me a ring here." Because there are things that he and I can sort out without the other two being involved. And you're kind of reaching out. So when I got home, I went round to Paul's house, uh, rang the bell, and he wasn't in. So I put a message through that he had outside his house, he had a sort of letterbox where you could put stuff in, you know. And I said, I've been to see John, and John wants to talk to you. And I never heard back. But I rang his father, who I was very friendly with, a couple of days, well, a few, few days later. And he's Father said, Ray, it's all moved on, son. You always call me son. It's all moved on, son. If I were you, I wouldn't get involved anymore. So I thought, okay, forget about it. What I always thought was what should have happened was George's idea that they'd take some time off from each other 
make their own albums. And if they felt like it later on, get back and work together again. But yeah. that didn't that didn't happen. And it's a shame because, I mean, I know Ringo played with all of them, but they yeah. weren't Beatles. And it was just a shame. Just a, just a shame. It was a total shame. In our analysis, looking at what happened, you would you know better than me, but we think that things had spun out of control even by the, the September, you know, in terms of relationships. Yeah. And that um, that John started to walk things back, even though he talked to you in December, we see movements in in December, or he gave some interviews in December, in January, in February, where he seems to be walking back his position a little bit. So I wonder if he wouldn't have changed his mind within a few more months, because he seemed to be very manic in that period, September, October, November, December. Then he seems to come back January, February, and it seems to be less manic. And I just wonder if he needed to go through that and have that space and then might have, like you said, had the opportunity to change his mind a little bit. Because one of the things that I think is that he was very upset by Paul making this statement, but also more importantly, Paul making that statement, even if it was accidentally, took away the ability for him to walk it back and for them to get back. Yes, absolutely. He he couldn't get out of it after that. It's a shame. But in a way, you know, I've always thought, well, not always, but after a few years, I thought breaking up was the best thing the Beatles did because we still, you, you and I are still talking about them. Yeah, yeah. We don't talk about the Rolling Stones. They stay together. And, yeah. But we don't love them in the way we love the Beatles. No, no, no. And I think by ending it, they were drawing a line under that period of not only their lives, but our lives too. Say, so, well, it's all it's over. Because, you know, what would have been awful would have been if they'd stayed together and the next album wouldn't have been quite as good as the one yep. before. And yep. the next one, not quite as good as the one before that. And after a while, they'd have become just another band. Yeah. And they never did because they broke up. And the other yeah. thing you can do is die. If you, if you die, you, you do the same thing. Elvis should have died in 1959, but he died in, <laughs> in 1777, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in a way, he'd thrown it away slightly. But, you know, had he never come back from Germany, he'd have been remembered far more fondly than he is, not by everybody, because I, I know people have to go and see him. His musical influence would have been remembered more fondly. Yes. Yeah, because he was revolutionary. And John and I would talk about Elvis all the time. When I was in New York one time, he said, I've lost all my, all my Elvis records <laughs> with breaking it with Cynthia and everything. And um, I said, well, well I was going to phone RCA Victor and see if they can give us some. And they said, sure, yeah, for John Lennon, where is he staying? And I think we were either at the St. Regis or one of those, anyway. And um, so apparently when I came back to England, they sent back around a whole box full of all the Elvis singles, most of which John hated, but it had his favourites too. It had, you know, Don't Be Cruel and Hound Dog and all those things. Um, and I, I'm glad to see that when he died, Hound Dog was still on his jukebox. He'd kept that one. Can I go back to the the story, the one that, you know, in your book, I think you say it's in the fall of 1971, where you're with John, uh, I think, to see Yoko's exhibition or... Yeah, Yes, yes. And you spend John's birthday with him. um, And and at that birthday, he, there's actually recordings of that where he's playing some of Paul's 
songs from Ram, which is interesting because this is a period where he and Paul are fighting in the news quite a bit, and he's just come out with How Do You Sleep? And it's kind of fascinating that at the same time as he's going after Paul, he's playing Paul's songs and sending Paul a message. room at the university I think actually it was in the hotel it was in the hotel that's where it was and Phil Spector had us all singing bits of songs I didn't like Phil Spector ever to be honest but there you go but anyway they wanted John to sing and he did a bit he would um, I, I was present when other journalists were there and sometimes one would sort of criticise Paul and John would immediately leap to his defence because it was okay for him to criticise Paul but nobody else so when someone said Mocked Let It Be. John said, that's the best bloody song in the in the top 50, isn't it? You know, he was quite sort of, quite defensive of Paul in that respect. Um, well, because that, that speaks to a certain level of, you know, like they have an intimacy and a bond. Yes, yes. They'd been together so long and he'd known Paul when Paul was 15 or something. What happened? It's like a marriage, you know. These two broke up. Paul took a long time getting over it. Uh, and, and probably John too, although it, it was too macho to show it. But they had a marriage before Yoko arrived. You know, although they both had girlfriends, lots of girlfriends and all that sort of stuff, they were locked together because they could work together and they could know what the other one was thinking in a song. They could, If one of them said, let's change it here, they'd say, okay, what should we do? Let's, oh, yeah, let's try that. Okay, this sort of thing. And then the marriage ended. And that's partly, because I mean, not totally, but it's partly because Yoko turned up and was she demanded an awful lot of attention. She just didn't turn up as a girlfriend. She demanded yeah. equal attention with John, which to me was absurd. I'm not really uh, able to comment on her, on what she did. But yeah. all the stuff that she co-wrote Imagine is nonsense. She didn't co-write Imagine. She wrote Imagine, I think, three times in a grapefruit book. Imagine there's a... A, a wood and with the lake in it and you draw the water out of the lake and then it's empty but that isn't the same as saying imagine there's no heaven it's easy if you try that's quite different um, it's inspirational you know john took inspiration everywhere i mean i've always loved that one he never quite recorded grow along with me the best is yet to yeah. be which he nicked from somebody else yeah which is fair enough we all do that okay so there's two things one in in looking at the john and paul situation we hear that Paul went through a period of getting over John, yeah. but I see John as really struggling with getting over the relationship in the 70s. And I think that's not really 
seen in popular culture. You know, it's viewed as Paul really struggled and John didn't. Like, John was fine. And yet by 1970, like, Janoff says that John was in a terrible state when he met him. And, you know, he talks about Paul a lot in the 70s. So I, I don't know what your opinion of that is, but you, you just said that maybe he was too macho to show it, you know? Well, I think he was. I think he he was, um, you know, these people are as affected as much by what the papers say as by what they say of each other. And John would, John would say some quite cruel things. He didn't really mean them. That's the other thing about John. You didn't have to believe everything he said. Yeah, I love how you did not report everything John said or take it seriously no. like many other reporters did. No, because it, it was often nonsense. Uh, yeah. And I knew he didn't mean it. I was always trying to get it right. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking what the effect would be. I mean, I, I, can, I can't think what it was. There was something he said. And I said, I'm not going to write that, you know. I said, why not? I said, well, if you do, the repercussions will be huge. I can't remember what it was. There was something. And I said, well... I don't think you mean it. I don't think. Anyway, I didn't. I felt as a journalist, you had to sort of try and get it right, despite the people who were saying things sometimes. I wish more people had done that with John because, you know, people take things he said so seriously now that he really meant it. And and to me, one of the things that actually reflects how much Paul meant to him was how angry he was. You yeah. know, yeah. to me, that's commensurate with the feeling of hurt he had. Yeah. I'm sure that he was. I think the post Beatle period, he went through this for a short time. It became a sort of peace hippie, um, yeah. Debbie Hoffman stuff. And then he was, yeah. he was a mad feminist. And then he was this and then he was that. And you sort of think he's searching around for something else when before that he had the Beatles to, to think about. Also, he must have thought he wasn't sure he could write such good songs anymore. Uh, I mean, yeah. yes, he wrote some good songs. But he didn't write as many good songs as he had done in the Hard Day's Night or Rubber Soul period. I remember Yoko ringing me on the, the day he was shot, actually. And she said, you've got to get over here, Ray, because, we, you know, and I said, well, I'll come tomorrow. I'll come tomorrow. OK. And then she said, um, we were talking about how John is doing a lot of publicity. She said, well, it's not the way it was 10 years ago. We, he has to do it to sell the record. That was the gist of the conversation. And he also won't know for sure whether the songs are as good as he wants them to be. I, I never understood why he gave her half the songs on that last album he did, but he did. But yeah, to go back to your point about Yoko in 1968, this is one of the things when we're looking at this period that I, I don't understand. You know, they should be respectful of her, but why wouldn't they be upset she was there? Like, why wouldn't Paul have been upset that all of a sudden his songwriting partner has somebody sitting there. I think as a creative person, I just think, well, I couldn't work like that. And I would be very upset with, it's just very unprofessional. It's, you know, they're like the most famous band in the world. I mean, I just like what was going on in that people think that that's normal. It know? wasn't normal. And I think the answer is heroin. Heroin was going on. And, and they'd nip away every now and again to replenish their appetite and then come back. I think that's part of it, you know. I'm afraid, I mean, remember John was saying about drugs, and we were talking in his in Tittenhurst Park again, and he said, I'm not telling you which drug, because I get into all kinds of trouble about that, but, you know, I've had trouble with drugs at the moment. And um, it was later I discovered it was heroin. Um, yeah. So heroin users like someone, another heroin user, to be alongside them. They enjoy it. Yeah. 
And I, I just think that was probably part of it. Uh, it may have been more than part of it. And it was a shame because it, I can see it, 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 it drove them all crackers. It drove Paul, George and Ringo mad. It must have been very difficult, you know, to have someone, when they've worked together since they were boys, somebody yeah. else who's now, and now has a say in it. That's the other thing. He always used to ask Ringo what he thought. John always asked Ringo what he thought. And Ringo would, would say, yes, well, whatever. And suddenly he's asking Yoko, what does she think? These were the most famous musicians in the world at the time. They were asking opinion of someone who admitted she didn't even like rock and roll. Right, right, and was not a musician. I mean, well, that's the musician. Yeah. <laughs> that's the confusing thing to me. Is like, why does we call out the fact that she's not? She was an artist, not a musician. And I find mm-hmm. Yoko interesting. Like, I respect her as an artist, but it was disrespectful to them. Yeah, it was. And um, but John was off on his. He was living in another world, you know, and he and Paul were writing separately and bringing their own stuff in for the White Album. They had worked on that stuff together in Rishikesh, though. A lot of the stuff that he brought in, which is attributed to Yoko, was actually written in Rishikesh with, with Paul. I know. I know. It's, it's, um, don't get me on about, about it. I get so frustrated when I, I get frustrated when I read about uh, what a great partnership they were. They may have been a happy marriage for quite some time. But they were a great partnership musically. And John and Paul were a brilliant partnership musically. You read that, well, the minute that John met Yoko, he uh, stopped partnering with Paul. And, and, and he, he didn't, actually. You know, there's a lot of them still collaborating. Paul's still helping John a lot in 1969 with John's songs in terms of elevating them and their work, workshopping them. I mean, Paul seems to be working a little bit more independently, but he's still helping John a lot. Yeah. And so and that wasn't Yoko, you know, like that wasn't Yoko working through Don't Let Me Down or, no. you know, any of John's songs from that period that come together, Paul transformed or, you know, all the songs on the medley. That's still Paul or the ballad of John and Yoko. Those are all Paul and John still working together. And yeah. yet his partnership is diminished because everybody says, well, you know what, 1968 onwards, it was all Yoko and John, yeah. but it wasn't. Yeah. You know, being around at the same time and watching what was going on and being sort of disappointed. I, I always thought, I thought John gave in too much. You know, he should have, there's this very strong guy and then convinced himself that Yoko was an equal partner. Why? 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 Because she was his girlfriend and his wife, but she yeah. musically, musically she wasn't an equal partner. And, you know, why would she be? Who would, who would have been, you know? Right. Someone coming in, these guys have been together since they were 14 and 17. And suddenly, yeah. when they're 30, somebody else turns up and says, oh, yeah. well, she's, I mean, I, I, I got so fed up when John said, why would I want to work with Paul McCartney when I can work with Yoko? And I said, well, you know. <laughs> and then he said, oh, Frank Zappa. I said, well, yeah, but you and, you and Paul worked together really well. He yeah, said, we did, but, you know, I don't have to work with him. I can work with anybody I want. I began the, began the Beatles, but then he, he often said, or oh, two or three times said this. It hit me then. He said, suddenly, he was reading George Harrison's, the review of George Harrison's album, which he got very good reviews, George did. George was saying that he struggled to get his, his own songs on the albums. And, and he said, I pushed George more than anybody, saying, just bloody well sing. Just open your yeah. mouth and sing, because he had this quiet little voice and he didn't try. And then he suddenly said, Paul and me were the Beatles, you know. We wrote the songs. We wrote all the hits. Paul and me. 
And he yeah. said that. I printed it at the time and I thought, George is going to be really upset when he sees this. And it, it was true, though. That they were or that that's what he thought? Well, they were the Beatles. I mean, I think John and Paul were fantastic songwriters. And George did a, a few later on very, very well. Yeah, The real backbone of, of the Beatles material was John and Paul. And they were, you know, it would be tough on George's wife to hear this, but he was always the third Beatle, a ring of the fourth. Because, you know, George Martin said this, you know, if at one point then they thought George had, George walked out on, on them for a bit and went back to Liverpool. And John said, without thinking, well, we get Eric Clapton in. And when Ringo did it, they said, well, we get another drummer in. It's no problem. But they couldn't as have replaced. Are you saying that as, it was basically as long as it was him and Paul that they could continue? Yes. That's what that's what he was more or less saying. As long as we have the songs, we can get other people to play the guitar. We, well, we got Eric Clapton to play on my guitar gently weeps. So that wasn't unusual. Well, it was unusual, but it, it wasn't impossible. They don't turn up. We've got the songs where it's right. been, so, been so hard for George to get any of his songs. And he wrote some fantastic songs at the very end. Yes, yes, uh, yes. last two or three. Yeah. His songs added a flavor to the Beatles that I really enjoy. Like, I always enjoy George's songs, although I can imagine dealing with Lennon and McCartney would be difficult. Oh, God, can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine saying to Lennon McCartney, I've written this song called Not Guilty. I think it's quite yeah. good, you know. And it was quite a good song. It, 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 they could have been on, on an album. Um, yeah. So it wasn't until he started doing Here Comes the Sun or whatever, you know, that it, they took him seriously. It's interesting that John sang that at that time. He's sort of, he's so contradictory because clearly Lennon-McCartney means so much to him at that point. Yeah. You know, that Beat the Beatles will continue as long as it's Lennon-McCartney. And yet, you know, he's also destroying Lennon-McCartney by letting Yoko be there all the time and not protecting what Paul and he need as, as partners. Well, he did. Uh, and I just put it down to mainly to the drugs and put it down to that Yoko was a very dominant personality. You know, when, when you got to know, and I knew her pretty well, she was yeah. uh, she was quite determined. And, you know, she did make him think in other ways about some things. Certainly feminism, but then again, he did treat his first wife Cynthia very badly yep, in the in the breakup. Well, that wasn't very feminist. And, and Cynthia was a lovely woman. I mean, she's probably the wrong wrong wife for him. They met at college, but um, she was a very very nice person. I always liked Cynthia. And yeah, it, she came up very, very well in your book. And by the way, so did Mimi. Just to your point earlier. Yeah, she could say some quite cruel things, but she was. You know, we have to have lived during those times after the war when yeah. there wasn't much around. And she was a cut above most people that she lived uh, live with. She was a cut above her own sister, who they considered to be a bit to the family thought, oh, God, what's Julie going to do next, you know? And Julie lived on a council estate yeah. uh, across the park, not far from where Paul lived, actually. And John lived in a very smart, semi-detached house with... I think four bedrooms, a back garden, a front garden, trees, with a golf course more or less facing it. You know. <laughs> Not quite the working class hero. Nothing like the working class hero. And, yeah. and he went to a, a very, a very, very good grammar school, one of the best schools in Liverpool. Mimi wanted the best for her boy, and she got the best. John, I think he probably recognised it later on in life. We all do that. We all think later on our parents did more for us than we ever reckoned at the time. But, you know, right. Mimi... I remember, I remember once phoning Mimi about something. Oh, I was, I was going to write a film, that's right, for Warner Brothers. 
Warner Brothers wanted me to write a film about the young John Lennon. And this is 20 years ago. And um, I'd been commissioned and done all the research and everything, been to Germany and all these things. And uh, it got to start finally. Michael Apted was going to be directing it. Uh, I was on the phone to Mimi. She said something quite disparaging about Yoko. I thought, she's got quite a sharp tongue, this woman has. And I said, well, I don't know about that. But she did. Anyway, she then told Yoko... I was writing this film for Warner Brothers. Yeah. A few days later, I got a phone call, maybe the same day, I don't know, from yeah. Yoko's lover at the time, yeah. who, who shouted at me, what are you doing, you know, harassing Mimi? And I, I'm not harassing anybody. I'm talking, because right. we got on really well, you know. She's yep. an old lady I'm talking to her. She said, well, come down and see me when the weather gets a bit better, which is a very English phrase, that is. So I... I at that point, I thought, well, Yoko knows my phone number. She can ring me just with a, with an instant. Yeah. And she didn't. And she, she got somebody else to do the dirty work for her. She then went to Warner Brothers and big hoo-ha, and we didn't do the film in the end. It was a shame because it was a sympathetic film towards John. Is it because Yoko has to have control of everything? Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, I'll tell you something else. I was helping out on the Parkinson show. On, on, it was a chat show on, on British television. They said, have you got any good ideas? Said, why don't you do John Lennon? They said, can we get him? I said, well, I, I'll talk to him. I rang. He said, yeah, well, why not? So they said, can you send us a, a researcher so we know what so we know what we're going to be asked? So one of the researchers and I went down to Tiddenhurst Park one night and he played me Imagine Again. He was very keen that Yoko would be shown in a very positive light on television because, you know, he'd read all this thing, this, this mad Japanese yeah. woman. I mean, people were just intrigued by this this strange lady from Japan who right. who, who showed a bottom and other people's bottoms. We didn't think it was being any different. It was just a, a different kind of artist, you know. Anyway, yeah. Um, well, the Beatles, because you know, John John will say that that they had to start heroin because the Beatles were being mean to him and Yoko. Well, I don't. You know, I don't think they were. I think they were just cross because she kept turning up. Um, <laughs> For the legitimate reason that she was crashing their work. Yeah, yeah. I never heard any of them say anything racist. I didn't know George very well, but yep. I knew Ringo well and uh, Paul. And I never heard him ever utter a racist word about them, ever, never. What, what was his opinion of Yoko in, in 68, 69? You know, did, I, I know he was frustrated, but then, you know, there's some recordings of him in Let It Be where he seems to be defending John and Yoko. He's kind of like, well, you know, let them be. And, and Paul still does that, he, but he has to be friendly with her because they're still locked into the same relationship. Yeah, yeah. all these years on, they still co own Oh, they don't own them, actually. Somebody else owns them. But they, they still were co-writers. So, uh, and I think maybe Yoko softened a bit. And I think that they... But he never says anything anti-Yoko. Um, never to me. He once did say that Linda didn't get on with Yoko at all. But that's as far as he ever went. He never said he didn't get on with her. But of course, it must have driven him crackers. Just mad. <laughs> it would have driven any sane person insane. Paul always gets positioned as being jealous, the jealous one. And it's like... Paul was put into an impossible situation. Why wouldn't yeah. he be? It's not even jealous. Like he has a right to be upset yeah. about the situation. Yeah. Well, it was, it was their future that was being put in jeopardy. None of them knew whether they would work that well apart. They didn't know. They couldn't have known. Yeah. And yeah. I remember when Paul made the first album and John said something like, well, he's been trying to do that for years. He's been practicing with Mary Hopkin and Badfinger. Uh, yeah. Well, that's that, which is fair enough. But the, what, you mentioned the word jealousy. Yeah. I think what doesn't come out anywhere apart from in my book, to be honest, 
was that I, I've always thought John was jealous of Paul's ability to write fantastic melodies, which I can understand. I'd have been jealous too if this guy yeah. keeps coming up with Let It Be on the Wiley Road <laughs> yesterday. Think, oh my God, you know. Um, because John's, uh, well, I mean, Happy Christmas War is over, yeah. which is a complete ripoff of Stupal. Stupal was a yeah. race off. I wish it was mine. Happy Christmas was, yeah. It, it ripped things off and he'd say, oh, it's the same chords, you know. Um, no, John. John, yeah. yeah. Paul was, 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 uh, wouldn't do that, I don't suppose. But I always did think that John reasonably, quite reasonably, was jealous of Paul's abilities sometimes. And I think, and it's quite possible too that, that Paul was jealous of John's abilities because John was very clever with words. He really was. He was very yeah. quick to he was very quick to turn a phrase around. If he yeah. could see a joke coming, he'd say it. Or um, yeah. so it was very quick like that. Yeah, because John's such an icon right now. When people look back, I think that they um, don't understand how powerful Paul was in John's mind. Yes, you know, creatively. Yeah, Paul was. Paul is a very clever guy. You know, John was to say. Paul could have been a, a doctor or a lawyer. I ruined his life, you know, joking. Yeah. But, but in a way, Paul could. When I wrote him in my, what could have happened to the Beatles, you know, sorry, goes you fail the audition, I make him a teacher. But he could have been anything because he is clever. He was clever at school, but his his interest was in music. And, and, and you know, John recognized that very, very quickly when he first heard him. I thought, okay, oh, this guy can do all kinds of things. Do I yeah. want him in? The, do I want him in the band because he might push me out? Um, yeah. As it happened, they were a perfect partnership. Uh, although they didn't write much in Germany, you know. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, that's really interesting. That they seem to have. I mean, that they seem to have been focused on uh, performance at that point. But yeah. but to go back, you know, like Paul has said in in public, he he made the statement to Playgirl in 1985 that John told him that Jealous Guy was written about him. I never knew that. Um, it's a good song, actually, wasn't it? Good song. One of my favorite John songs. And it's interesting to me that Paul has said this in the public, and yet it's never been taken up. Like, I think Paul was, Paul said, look, John told me he wrote Jealous Guy about me, and yet it hasn't been no. recognized. No, well, I thought when I was about John being jealous, it would, but it didn't, didn't catch on. But there you go. Why is that? Why you know, is people, that? that yeah, people don't want to spoil, you know, they've got this in their heads now. They've got this, this strong guy. Uh, they don't want to know that John may have been unsure of himself and jealous of Paul. It, it doesn't fit the image. You know, John became a saint when he died. Uh, yeah. Yoko made sure of that. She worked very hard, and she still works hard at it. Whenever anything comes out, it, it's John, the great peace lover, the great the great philosopher, all these things. Um, yeah. That's a lot of nonsense, you know, a lot of it. He got bored with it. He just got bored with the peace thing after a while. He may have said it, but he didn't do much about it. That was John. He was always moving on, you know. I mean, there's one time when he was offering money to um, Norade, which is a thing in, in America where they collect money for the widows and orphans of the, of the IRA problems in Northern Ireland. But you didn't know where the money was going to go. He he couldn't he couldn't have been sure it wasn't being used to buy bombs and guns and things. And when that pointed out, he just dropped it. Then there's another time. There's a guy here called Tariq Ali and one called Robin Blackburn who are very left wing um, academics basically. And they go to him and they say, John, how are we going to bring about the great socialist revolution? Something like that, you know. And John thinks, oh bloody hell, I don't, I don't want to get into this because yeah. all, all of a sudden he was thinking he was out of his depth. These guys were serious political students yeah and he wasn't yes. he, yeah. he just liked the idea of it for a while but then he lost interest and did something else yeah he didn't yeah. follow through yes but, yeah but there's no reason why he should 
you know. Yeah, yeah. He called attention to it, which was good. Yeah, he was a great talker. He, he could talk. <laughs> he could talk a great game. He really could. One of the things that I find frustrating is that, like, I think Yoko. To me, there seems to be this competition between whether or not the the John Yoko partnership was more powerful than the the Paul John partnership, and there there seems to be some competitiveness about yeah. who the better creative pair you know yeah i know well whenever you see anything that yoko is involved in you find that much else is forgotten about poor cynthia just disappeared she's just yeah, written exactly. off she was just written out of the yep. story but yep. he was with he was with cynthia for donkey's years you know for a long long time yeah poor julian got written out for a long time yep. uh, no. we all get things wrong in our lives you know so we're here criticizing him if necessary. <laughs> i know and then you think, well, did I do wrong things? Probably. But oh, yeah. John is held up as being a kind of saint by Yoko, a sort of, you know, the saintly John. And he was no such thing. No, and it, you know what? To me, it so undermines his image because I like John the eccentric who's funny and witty and creative. You make that point that he was always very funny, but his public yeah. image. His public image was quite sort of sharp. But actually, when you're with him, you're always laughing. And, yeah. and he laughed at himself all the time, which is forgotten completely. A lot of the, those Rolling Stone interviews with, you know, whatever his name was. Um, yeah, Jan Wenner, yeah. yeah. It was, uh, I think people took them seriously. But half the time, oh, I, mean, yeah. I, I mean, I'd heard a lot of that before. And I thought, that's just John going on a rant again. And, you know, it, it wouldn't have suited the Evening Standard, my paper. But I mean, yeah. it, but it was also a great length. He could on, on, on. But they took him seriously. And he wasn't that serious. A lot of the jokes were against himself. Oh, my God. That, that, and that, unfortunately, has become... Yeah, the Bible. Uh, so tell me, what was Paul like in 1969? How powerful was Paul in the dynamic in 1969? You've well, got John. He was the one that was powerful. He was the one that's doing the work. Uh, if you look at the Abbey Road album, yeah, yeah, John didn't do a lot on it. You know, no, um, he wasn't interested. Paul was still writing his songs um, and also improving. You know, John's big hit off it. Um, with that bass line, ding, 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 ding. yeah, which is what oh, it was. Oh yeah, he made, he made that song because it, without that, it wasn't really a song. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, that yep. was that was when Paul began doing that in the studio, and they thought, oh yeah, oh that'll work. Let's do that with his bass. You know, I mean, Paul isn't shy in coming forward, so he would have been sort of saying, let's do this, do that. And of course, John was was had other interests. He had Yoko, and, and he had the drugs and things. So. He was probably feeling, feeling that he wasn't that important anymore because Paul was doing it all, you know. And so that would have irritated. But, of course, he could have changed it by doing a bit a bit more, but he didn't. Right. He let, well, he even said somewhere, I think one, one of my pieces, he let Paul take the reins. He let Paul become the leader after Brian Epstein died. That's the way it's always spun, and that's the yeah. way John says, that he let Paul. And I, maybe Paul was also powerful and, you know, a co-leader. Well, Paul is powerful, you know. He always was. Um, it was by that time. John was distracted. And, you know, I always think John's best time was Rubber Soul and Hard Day's Night, that period. Oh, yeah. I think he was fantastic. I think things like In My Life, which may Paul may have written the tune, but um, things like that, you know, it's they were fantastic. Beautiful. He, he, he just got it right. Uh, later yeah. on, I bought... You know the the album sometime in New York City, and 
I bought them all, you know, I was very loyal, but I didn't play them as much. And that's, that's, the, that's the governing factor. If you don't play them as much, that means you're not that bothered about them. But also, you know, if, you, if you're going to be a musician, it helps to be around musicians and to be speaking the language they speak. John was around artists. You know, John wanted to be more of an intellectual. That's how he saw himself. Yeah. And Yoko was a kind of intellectual in his in his eyes. Sarah Lawrence was quite a posh school to go to, this sort of thing. And I just think that he he wanted to shine in that area too. When he started calling himself an artist, well, you know, Paul just said, I'm a rock and roller, that's all. That's what I do, you know. Well, actually, Paul was a lot more than that. But John would sort of say... Well, I'm an artist. I can do anything I want, really. His best work was as a songwriter. That really was his best work. But maybe that wasn't enough. If Maybe he thought, I want to be more than that. I want to be an intellectual. But John wasn't an intellectual. He didn't have, you know, his, his education really ended at 16 when he left school because when he went to art college, he, he, he didn't do very much. So he didn't have, he didn't have a university education, which I, I used to think, does he miss this? Does he think... Yeah. I don't feel clever enough, you know. Clearly very clever in, in other ways. I always thought he was, he was very clever. Oh, But daft, yes. but daft. He said daft. <laughs> yes, clever and daft at the same time. That's John Lennon. He read massively. Yep. I mean, I mean he did read an awful lot later on. And yep. I think that's probably, in a way, wanting to catch up because he would have realized later that yep. you know, he, he might know all the lyrics of the Chuck Berry songs, but he, <laughs> there's other stuff he didn't know. <laughs> um, because he hadn't, right. been, he hadn't had that kind of education, uh, he'd, yeah. he'd been bored at school and hadn't done very, yeah. very well, and yeah. so maybe that's something to do with it. He was—I think—he probably wanted to be something other than what he was. Yeah, well, and it wasn't may- enough just being the most famous person in the world. <laughs> I know. Well, what do you think happened in 1968? Because when we traced it back, you know, we see that John is talking to Hunter Davies and and in late 67, and he seems to be all in on the Beatles. Like he's all in and Cynthia makes the point that you need them more than they need you. And then they go to India and then he comes back, seems to be quite depressed for a while. And then he hooks up with Yoko. And there seems to be something else before Yoko comes into the picture. He was certainly breaking up with Cynthia because I remember Cynthia telling me that they never had sex when they were in India. And she felt she had to go and sleep somewhere else. Yeah. Which is a bit of a cruel thing to do when you take your wife on holiday. So Yoko was writing to him. Yoko was offering something different. She was offering him this new world that he'd only glimpsed. I mean, Yoko's very clever, you know. Let's never never forget that. She's a very, very clever woman. Yeah. I always felt that she saw what she wanted in John. Yeah. Um, And John made her a very, very famous person. And she wasn't a famous person before him. And she would sort of say, well, maybe John doesn't know all the artworks I've done. Well, yeah. I, I, I don't know all his songs. And I was thinking, well, you know, there's no reason why you wouldn't know the things you've done because only 25 people in a studio gallery, in a, <laughs> in a studio in Greenwich Village ever saw it. And yet millions of people bought John's best work. Although, you know, she's always nice, nice enough to me until we fell out. She was nice enough to me. And incredibly course- indiscreet. She was incredibly indiscreet? Yeah, she'd tell me things that I've never printed and and I'm not going to tell you now. (laughs) Damn. Um, But do you think that there, it seems to us, when we we traced it, that there's 
there was an issue between John and Paul at some point uh, in, in 68 that was separate from from Yoko, that maybe that their creative marriage, as you said, might have had some issues. I'm trying to think about the, the albums. Well, John always thought that Sergeant Pepper was Paul's album. Yeah. And then there was Magical Mystery Tour and then the White Album. Well, that was a complete cock-up. Um, I just think that John was very druggy at the time. And I remember seeing on Magical Mystery Tour and he wore that awful suit and that sort of funny, yeah. and that funny hat. Um, yeah, and I didn't know him. I was frightened of him because I hadn't, oh, I'd, really? I hadn't met him then. I'd got to know Paul on the Magical Mystery Tour, and I was, I was nervous of him because you know you'd read all the things about him being this very sharp tongued, clever person, but yeah, he looked awful. Um, I just think Paul, by his naturally brilliance, was taking over almost. Well, that there was a vacuum when Epstein died, and John wasn't about to sort of be. To, to force things any further, yeah. Paul, because no one was, no one was sort of saying, "Let's do this, let's do that." Yeah, he did it. Now he, he went, may well have done it anyway. He may well have talked Epstein in, into doing things he didn't want to do. I don't know, but yeah. he wasn't there, so we'll never know. Um, yeah. What was your impression of Paul when you met him and John? So you met him. That you met them both on the Magical Mystery Tour. Do you remember what, like, what your first impressions were of them? Well, I, I met. Paul then, uh, I'd just come down, I'd been working on a paper in Liverpool, my, after, my first job after university, and I got a, a great job on the Evening Standard in London, and one of my first jobs was to follow the Magical Mystery Tour in my little car. So I called up in this car, yeah. and we drove down to the West Country, me about, and there was a whole stream of cars following them, uh, yeah. of other, other reporters and people and fans, whatever. And the first night out in a place called Dawlish, I think it was, or Tor Bay, one of those places on the south coast, they were all in the bar, all the journalists and the Beatles intermingling because the journalists had been with them since 63, so they were very, very familiar with them and yeah. friendly with them. And I didn't know anybody. And I sat on the outside thinking, how do I get to be involved with these people? I don't know how to do it. Yeah. yeah. And suddenly someone sat next to me and it was Paul. How fortuitous. Yeah. And I thought, well... I thought, I've got to say something to this fella. So I said, yeah. I know your father. And he said, yeah. I said, yeah, and your brother. And he said, oh, right. So we got talking. And then, that was the best thing you could have said, probably. Yeah, probably, yeah. I didn't know that, but it was. And then the, the next day, he sort of said, hello, you all right? And then I had his phone number. I don't know. It wasn't from his, his family. It must have been somebody else. They wouldn't give it to me, obviously. And I wouldn't ask them. But I did. So then I got to inter interview Paul first when they were discussing what to do with Apple and all that, before they went to India. Uh, but I was still frightened of John. I didn't really get close to John until until the White Album, uh, or, or even even after the White Album. And I was interested in Yoko, because she seemed very interesting from the outside. Yep. And then, you know, I got on well with her, and then with John, and then I'd already seen a lot of Ringo by then, you know. And uh, anyway, I did. So that's how I got involved with them. I never got close yeah. to George because I think he felt, and he was right to feel this, that I favoured John and Paul, and I did, yeah. musically. I thought they were more interesting, and I'm sure he realised that. Yeah. And so when he did his big triple album, All Things Must Pass, I, I, I asked for an interview, and I didn't get one, which was a surprise because I was offering him two pages in the Evening Standard, which is a great publicity. Wow. wow. And he didn't take it. And I can only assume 
because he thought I consider him the third Beatle. And I had. <laughs> what was your impression, though? I'm interested if you remember what, you know, you thought of each of them. Like once you actually got to know John, you, you said you found him a little intimidating at oh, first. Yes, sure. Only by what I read about him. Not when I got to know him, it's fine. But yeah. on Magical Mystery Tour, you could see who was running the show. It was Paul dashing around all over yep. the place. Yep. Acting the part of director and writer and everything. Yeah. So there was no real story anyway. But, um, <laughs> They were, yeah, they were just making. They went along. I remember when it came out; it was on BBC, and I had to ring Paul the next day, and they wanted me to write a piece about. The paper said, "Write a piece about how the Beatles have finally failed, because until then, everything they'd done had, had been gold. Nothing had failed. Yeah. And then the reviews yeah. were, were terrible. I thought, well, I'll ring Paul and I rang him, and his father answered. He, he was down staying with him for Christmas. And he said, uh, oh, oh, hello, son. <laughs> oh, Paul's still asleep. I'll tell him you called. Right. So I rang about another half an hour later. And you're on an evening paper, so you've got to do it. You can't mess around. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be in in the afternoon editions. So, and, uh, and again, he's still asleep. He's still asleep, Ray. The third time I rang, and his dad said, Ray, God loves a trier. <laughs> I'm going to wake him up for you. So he went upstairs. And woke Paul, and Paul came on. He said, well, what did you think of it? And I said, I didn't like it. And he said, mm. the first person that said that to me. Mm. And I thought, that's very telling, that nobody at Apple had said it, although by yeah. then they knew that they hadn't got an American sale, which is what they really wanted. Yeah. So it cost more than they got back from it, but there you go. Was Paul's relationship with his father very close? Yes. If his dad said something, Paul would listen very carefully. You know, but, and of course, the sun shone out of Paul, as far as his father was concerned. Because, <laughs> he was the, he was he was good looking. He's he's nice. He's, he's on the telly. He's so successful. I mean, can you imagine having a son like that? Yeah, yeah. In your archives, there's a story where you meet with Paul in 1968 at his place. And yeah. is there as well. Did you did you have much of an impression of them as a couple? She One only thing. came in at the very end. Um, well, they were a couple, no doubt. Uh, but, you know, it was a beetle. And the, and the temptations must have been considerable when she was away. Yeah. And that happened. And somebody else turned up. And then Jane came back from Bristol with the Bristol old vet. And she came back and found somebody, somebody else there. So she thought that was yeah. Um, but I mean, was your impression that they were a nice couple uh, or a good couple? They were, you know, like a favourite couple in the country because they were, they looked great. They were nice. Paul was man about town a bit, all these things. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure they were very fond of each other. And I'm sure it was very painful for both of them to break up. Jane was, was uh, I think Jane, I know she didn't like she didn't like some of the sort of when they with the, with the Rolling Stones. She hated all that sort of yeah man stuff. <laughs> she hated the sort of the druggy lingo, yeah, yeah, that that, that that would come out. She was far too straight for that. And uh, I always liked Jane. She was nice. Yeah, yeah. You you had a, a couple of interesting comments from her after they broke up that she had been naive about the women and and didn't. Yeah. Like the drugs. She's naive. I mean, she's naive about everything because she was very young, you know. She wasn't part of the druggy culture at all. Uh, yeah. She was an actress and she was a good actor. 
And that's what, what her life was, and that's what she wanted to do. She'd been brought up in a very smart place in Harley Street in London, in Mayfair, which is really hot stuff, you know? Um, yeah. I wonder if the Paul that lived with her family, you know, that that was one side of him when he was with her. Yeah, well, they certainly offered offered him a family. Yeah, he could go there. But then again, he was a Beatle. When he was not there, he would be a target for every pretty girl in the world. And yep. he, he, he was pretty, you know, he was a good-looking guy, very talented, a lot of charm, all these things. He didn't want to miss out on whatever else was going on, not just girls, but on yep. on cultural scene, the 60s. Funnily enough, when he got with Linda a little time later, he was extremely happy to be a family man. I think that's what he probably always wanted. And maybe if Jane had wanted to stay at home and be a family wife, they would have stayed together. You know, it's that thing about what he needed was a family and children. And he was a very good father. I remember when they lived down in Sussex. We had friends who lived next door. Uh, I mean, next door is like a mile away, but they own all the land in between. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but they they um, the children were very, very well brought up. You would never have known them by the clothes they wore, that they were the sons of a multimillionaire famous person. Yeah. The children could have been, the, the clothes could have come from the, you know, just ordinary clothes, and the ordinary yeah. children. And I thought that was really clever of him. He sent them to, they resent, I think, I know Stella's resented this, that he, he sent them to ordinary state schools. I think Stella, at one time, wished she'd gone to a, 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 a smarter school, a private yeah. school. But yeah. you know, he wanted them to be as close to normal as you could get, and that's the way he saw it. And Stella did pretty well anyway, let's face it. She did, she did. I mean, I kind of understand her perspective. If I was, you know, in Paul's position, I'd want my kids to go to the best schools possible, but I guess, you know, he had lived in that world and maybe this is how he felt was the best antidote to yeah. being, being famous. I know when it came to my turn, my children went to the best school possible, but that was because I was academically keen for them. Paul probably didn't have that because he, he left school at 17. He seems to have been academically inclined, even though he didn't follow through. He was. He could have done. If he'd tried, he would have gone to university, no doubt. And done a, as John said, he could have been anything he wanted. But he didn't. He wanted to be a musician, and he was very good at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was your opinion of Linda? I liked Linda. She was, she was, she was all right. She was the first. Normally... When you talk to the wife of someone, they don't ask you questions. She always asked questions about being a journalist. She was interested in what it was like and these sort of things. She was very nice. She was easy to get on with. I, I could see why he liked her. Yeah, she was nice. I was very sorry when she died. It was very sad. Died far too early. You wrote a, a wonderful bit about her, about meeting her. You were ex expecting something different. That, that's the thing that confuses me, is everybody seems to have been very confused by her. You know, as as like the, the follow up to Jane, it was the lack of glamour or something that that confused people. She wasn't cute the way Jane had been, and the way and the way Patty was. They were cute, you know, uh, especially Patty. But she was just very, very likable. That's what it was about her. You just liked her, and you liked being in her company. Oh, and that goes nice. that goes an awful long way, you know. There were, I mean, Paul would have had prettier girlfriends over his years as a single man, that's for sure. But, you know, it's only skin deep. And uh, 
Linda was a very, very nice person. And she wasn't unattractive, but she wasn't as cute as some of the, of the girls he, he would have had earlier. But she yeah. was. But, she, but also, she came from a different social background. Um, so she wasn't phased by wealth or phased by any of these things. They went and lived in Scotland, and Paul made his own furniture. Yeah. Because you know, he liked woodwork at school. So yeah. he did that. And they lived, you know, pretty ordinary lives. Very, very ordinary lives. They had no bath for the first couple of years. You know, yeah, yeah. This sort of thing. Uh, and she used to laugh about it. She said, yeah, we, we liked it there. Because they weren't bothered by anybody. And she gave him the phrase, a wonderful phrase actually, when he didn't have to give everyone his phone number. And I remember the first time I, I didn't have it. She just said, it's allowed for him to be, you know, not to have to answer to journalists all the time, something like that. You're allowed to be your own person. You don't have to be at the beck and call of people like me, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because even in your, your interview that you did with him right after the breakup of the Beatles, after the announcement, yeah. you portray him as being like wanting to correct the story, but but then making the point that I'm very happy as... Yeah. You know what was he at that time? Like in the in the early, that must have been an awful time for him because he's being attacked by the world. But he he was happy with Linda, though. Well, he wanted me to put his side of the story. That's why he rang me up. I mean, I yeah. didn't, I didn't ring him. He rang me, and he wanted to explain that he was just an ordinary person, which you, you referred to earlier. And if the Beatles had broken up, and it, and it seemed they had done by then, he, he was accepting that now and saying, I can do other things, though. You know, I want to do other things. You know, the, we had the baby in the studio last week, something like that, you know, things like that. And that was, um, I think at the time he meant them. I think he meant it, yeah. I've got another life. I don't have to be this famous Beatle person, always in the papers, always on telly. I can be something else. And life is more than just being a Beatle. And it it's true, it was more and has been more. And he's he's managed to run both very well over a very long period of time, let's face it. Yeah. You know, you make make the point in the book that, you know, John and Yoko were a, a couple for the decades. But I always think that Paul and Linda are just as interesting as a couple. Yeah, they are. But they weren't as outrageous or they weren't seeking. You know, John sought publicity for Yoko endlessly because that was his way of getting her famous, was making her, you know, that's what he wanted to do. He 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 made her famous, you know. There's no doubt about that. Why was that so important for him? That's what she wanted, and that's what that's that was part of the relationship. That uh, that she was telling him that I'm this famous artist. I mean, I think it's in the book. He said she's the most famous artist that no one's ever heard of, or something like that. But he said I'm going to make her famous, even if I've got to do it myself. And he did it himself. He made her famous. You see, the trouble is, Yoko's personality got in the way of everything. She came across to most people as somebody on the make. It was nice to see them together. You know, you think of them being a sort of serious pair, but he joked about her all the time. He'd make her laugh. Um, yeah. And that was nice nice to see. Yeah. Do you know when they, they started? Well, she'd been pursuing him, that, that's for sure. He'd known her. And um, I think she played the long game <laughs> in that, you know, she sent him nice little letters and things. And yeah. these ideas attracted him because they were unusual. Yeah, he'd never met a girl like this before. She was quite different, uh, interesting, different from everything everything he yeah. knew. And, you know, poor Cynthia couldn't compete with this. If she'd said it, he said, don't, don't be so daft. But, you know, Cynthia's saying, imagine that cloud in the sky is me. They thought she was crazy. But he let Yoko yeah. get away with it because Yoko had a sort of 
mystical way of coming on. Which, which speaks to him, you know, I, like John yeah. seems to be into those kinds of things. You know, there's interviews with him where he talks about having a telepathy with the Beatles. Yeah. So I think both John and Yoko seem to have that similar belief in, you know, in the stars. It was written in the stars. Do you think we? Do you think he? I'm not sure he actually thought that. I think they like to say it, or we like, you know, whatever else, you know, another movie yeah. on Julia, all these sort of romantic ideas. It was embarrassing, to be honest, um, when I'd hear Yoko say that sort of thing, and I wouldn't write that in the pieces because I thought people are just going to laugh at her, you know. But she liked the idea, and he went along with it. He liked the idea that they were special, you know. People say to me. Was he your friend? And I said, well, he always introduced me, when, especially when we were in America. This is Ray. He's a friend of ours from London. And he said that many times. But actually, and I was very fond of him, all that. And I, I, I'm sure he liked me. Yeah, we got on. We talked yeah. about our record collections and things. You know. But, you know, he didn't know my family. I knew his. He didn't know my wife and children. Didn't know what the names were. Um, really? Didn't inquire. So... I've always said, well, you know, when you're friendly with the most famous person in the world, it's not necessarily two-sided. I was his friend, but my wife wasn't his friend. And, you know, I was always, I was always aware of that. But that's all right. I, I didn't mind, you know. I, my wife certainly didn't mind. Plum didn't mind. She said, in fact, she didn't even like him that much. He drank up sometimes. She said, oh, it's that John Lennon. <laughs> but but uh, um, it was, you know, she didn't like Yoko. Yoko had an awful habit of ringing in the night time when we were asleep because she always forgot that New York was only five hours behind. So yeah. she would ring here and wake Plum up. So that was the end of my first conversation with Ray. Now I had the opportunity to talk to Ray on multiple occasions, and so this next part of the interview is the continuation of our conversation. Now you may notice that we revisit some of the same topics, and there is a little overlap. This is because I wanted to get some additional detail and nuance from Ray on these topics, and I thought it was worth including. And I kicked us off with a very deep and meaningful question. You met John over what, like a 10, 12 year period. Did you have a favorite look for John Lennon? I thought he looked ridiculous when he grew his hair long. Um, <laughs> and he tried to be like a mad hippie. Uh, yeah. He was like joining in with the, the fashion of the time. And it didn't suit him either because he, he looked very thin. You mean in like 68, 69 or yeah, in, in 1975? About 69, wasn't it? 69, 70. Yeah. I think he got his hair cut when he went to Denmark with Yoko and came back with short hair. And that was a lot yeah. better. They both had the... Yeah. It, it didn't suit her. It suited him. I mean, I know what John was trying to do. He's trying to look like her. And it, they were... It was a strange period for John and strange period for Yoko too, I suppose. Um, but he decided he, that they were going to be John and Yoko, like a sort of some kind of franchise like McDonald's or whatever, 
John and Yoko, instead of being John of the Beatles, it was just John and Yoko. Yeah. And they both kind of trying to look alike and, and tried to wear the same sort of clothes. And it was kind of, I thought it was daft, actually. There you go. But, uh, <laughs> but you know. Why? Why? It was incredibly narcissistic. Um, who cares that you want to look exactly like your wife? You know, really, apart from you, nobody else cares. It's kind of, we want to be twins. And then at that period, they were talking about, well, like Heathcliff and, and Kathy and Wuthering Heights. And they definitely weren't. And, you know, and I, I just thought, this is, it's, I think it's kind of silly. And I always thought John was, was bigger than that. And so he went through a sort of kind of dippy period, you know. And I did thought it was, it was really dippy. But then he seemed to get over it, thank God, and went on to be. When did he get over it? He got over it by, by Imagine, actually, I think. By the time he, um, yeah. Well, but they still, I mean, I don't think John talked much about that anymore. Have you read Mark Lewison's big book, Tune In? Yes, I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've no real opinion. I've read so many books on John, I've forgotten completely what, what I've read or not read. You know, they've all, they've all merged in my head completely. All I remember now is the John I knew. And what I tried to do in my book on John was to actually present him as accurately as I really could. Although as a friend, I wanted to be to be as fair and as accurate as possible. So some fans didn't like the book because I wasn't always nice about him. But John wasn't always nice. So when he, yeah. when he wasn't, I was going to put it in. And I think John would have liked it, actually. He, he, he didn't mind being criticized. He was quite funny about it. In fact, when when there were bad reviews of him, I remember he'd say, "Oh, have you seen that great one in the in the Daily Mirror?" And he just loved it. He just loved the idea that people were criticizing him. It was funny. I love that, you know. Yeah. And that that's um, sometimes, you know, the version of John that we hear about these days is, you know, so it's he's treated so preciously. Oh, he's you know, like him. Oh, it's boring, that's, isn't it? Yeah. Not him. He was a bastard half the time, but. It, he was a clever, but he was a clever bastard, and he was, it was good to be around. But you know, um, it could be very difficult. And actually, you know what we were just talking about. I did a uh, an episode on John and Yoko, and we called it uh, rebranding Lennon. Yeah. Because it, I felt like what he and Yoko were doing in this period, the John and Yoko, like you said, they they almost created a brand, and it was to to in my opinion, differentiate him from the Beatles and specifically from Paul, from Lennon McCartney. Yeah. Is that a sense that you got too, that he was trying, like I got that from your book as well, that one of the attractions to Yoko beyond the romantic for John was that he was attracted to what she could do for him or the, you know, the, the new image or the, an entree into the world, uh, the art world that he was interested in. Absolutely right. Yeah, that's that's what he he found that attractive. And I thought at the time, well, come on, John, you, you don't need this actually, you know. But um, she sold herself very well to him. She made him think that oh, there's a a life other than the Beatles. And in a way, he was sort of thinking beyond the Beatles and onwards. What's going to happen to me next? You know. Now, whether or not he he would have done anything other than write songs, I don't know. Um, because he did write things, but he wrote little stories and things. But he never wrote, yeah. never wrote a novel. I think he did try to write one, but anyway, it's never published. 
Um, and he, he never did anything else properly than write songs. But um, she seemed to offer to him a kind of a university education which he'd never had. And, you know, he'd been into rock and roll and he'd, he'd been a, he'd loafed around at art school and, and not taken that very seriously, more interested in, in playing music. And so I think he really... He was flattered when intelligent and well-educated people took an interest in him. He found that he, he really enjoyed that. Although he would always make fun of fun of people who were who were praising him, and the more intellectual the praises were, the more he'd make fun of them. But at the same time, I think he secretly en he enjoyed being taken seriously by people with very high educations. You know, he really did. Um, yeah. That's and, interesting. And in a way, you sort of think, well, if you'd had more education yourself, John, you'd have, you'd have made more fun of them, you know? <laughs> right. Well, that's, that's sometimes my frustration. I think in some ways, maybe Yoko had a little bit of a disregard for what the Beatles were doing. Maybe she didn't. Um, oh, yes, she did. It, yes, she did. Yes, she... Did um, she? Oh, yeah. She. Uh, well, she didn't know half of what John had done. I mean, you know... I, I remember sort of saying things like, well, John doesn't know all of my things. I don't know all his songs. Well, the difference was that the entire world knew virtually all his songs and no one knew her works of art. Because, you know, when she came to England, she was a very little known avant-garde artist living in New York. When she came to England and she took her clothes off and photographed people's bottoms and things, she got a lot of yeah. a lot of crazy headlines. Um, and that... that as John said, she got me to take my clothes off too. But um, she sort of turned John on to the avant-garde. Well, it, it didn't need much turning on because it was halfway that way anyway. But then she really thought that some of her things, her imagine this, imagine that, you know, yep. were as good as, say, some of John's great songs. Everyone in the world knew those songs, but no one knew what Yoko had done. And they still don't know what she did. According to Paul, she approached Paul first because yeah, he had that's been right. in the She party. did, yeah. And so she must have known the Beatles to approach him, or did she just know him from that world? No. Everyone in the world knew the Beatles. It's impossible not to know the Beatles. She, she said she didn't, but I, I, that's not true. And John let, let her go along with the lie. It just wasn't true. She couldn't not know the Beatles. And the fact that's that she, right. she aimed herself at, Apple, at the Apple headquarters and she went around to their place in Wigmore Street and uh, they couldn't get rid of her and then they got Ringo to come out and he talked to her and he thought, oh God. You know, she was trying to get off with a Beatle. She was trying to get to know a Beatle because Beatles, you know, she wanted to be an avant-garde artist, fair enough, and she wanted their backing, fair enough. You know, we, we all need backing, all of us. Yep. And yep. So nothing wrong with that, but actually this weird notion that she didn't really know who they were, come on. Yeah. It's impossible not to have known then. You know, they were well, they were as as famous as <laughs> in an in another sense as Donald Trump, you know, in a horrible sense that is yeah. you know. But they were that famous in a positive way. They were that famous, you couldn't not know them, you know. We all knew about Yoko before she got involved, but we'd we'd been told. I'm trying to think of the time I first saw her. Well, she was with John the first time I saw her, but you know, she'd eased herself in very quickly. And she'd gone around to to Apple in Wigmore. It's in Wigmore Street in those days in, in Mayfair. Yep. The truth is that she came here with her husband. I think her husband followed her. Was it Tony Cox? Yep. And I think he encouraged her to, 
you know, get to know a Beatle because they can they can support you and help you become a famous artist, which is what she always wanted. Um, why was that? Why was fame so important to Yoko? I guess it's hard to say. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know the. It just was. It really was. She wanted always to be noticed and to be famous. She wanted to be a well-known avant-garde artist. Um, and in a way, she became one, but she became well-known because she was with John Lennon. Well, so she did pursue, she was around John for a while because it's so confusing the way they, they told the story, you know, the sort of the, the version that they like of the story <coughs> where, you know, they met one night yeah. and the two virgins night and it was like the start of like this beautiful, but but John had really known her for a year and a half before they got together, did, didn't he? Yeah, because it was, I don't know how long it was, but it was quite a while. Um, and And at first... He thought she was just this crazy woman. But, you know, she persisted. And in the end, he found himself falling for this crazy woman, you know. Why did Paul love it so much? Was it because it was working well for Paul? I mean, he just enjoyed it. And also, you know, he, as you say, he was having a, a hell of a writing time then. Whatever he touched turned to gold. He was just incredibly proud of the Beatles and what they'd done. And John wasn't? John was always very self-critical. You know, you talk about his records. I mean, uh, I think in, in my book, the Ray Conley Beatles Archive, we have a, a thing in it where he, he he went through it songs with me, and uh, yeah. he's so scornful of so many of them. Yeah. And uh, I was naming songs to, for him to talk about, and he said, "Oh God, not don't put that one in. <laughs> uh, that <laughs> that was terrible." And I said, well, you know, right. he said, Have you, what about putting some of the good ones in? I said, I've got those in as ready. Oh, all right. Then. But um, yeah, so there were, he was quite self-critical. I just wonder how much, you know, at that time, there was a, there was an interview that you did, and I'm paraphrasing here, that he basically was saying, well, you know, Paul is, is sort of described as the musical genius and George is the spiritual mm -hmm. one. And I'm yeah. sort of positioned as the nutter, you know? Yeah, yeah. And no, I wonder. No, I said the nutter. How... He said, "Where am I?" And I said, "You're the nutter." He said, "Yeah, that's oh, right." Yeah. I, yeah, that's right. Well, it was hilarious and true, but I just wonder at that time how worried John was in terms of his own, you know, how he was going to come off compared to Paul at that time. Yeah, you know, look at the two of them. Paul, when he met him, Paul could play guitar very well, and Paul taught John a lot of how to play the guitar. You know, he did. Uh, and yeah. which, which John happily admitted, yeah. And Paul, yeah. Paul was always very cute, you know, nice looking, yeah. All the, all the girls love Paul and George to an extent. Yeah. And of course, then Paul, you know, it did swing backwards and forwards. When John was doing Hard Day's Night, he had all those songs, yeah. But then, yeah. as as the '60s wore on, Paul had wrote more of the hits. You know, they were very, very competitive. Although they would write together, they were competitive about what they came up with. And so he got, John would depressed when they didn't want to do Across the Universe as a single, you know, because he loved it. And um, I quite like it too, to be honest. And Paul had this wonderful knack of writing writing popular songs. In, and in the 60s, he, he just couldn't stop. You know, he had so many. Yeah. He was just giving, giving them away. And John didn't find it so easy. And John's songs were, were often more intense, like Strawberry Fields Forever was, was an, in, an intense little song about... 
you know, doing all kinds of things. Yoko encouraged John to think, well, you're better than Paul. Paul does these silly love songs, you know, silly love songs, that like that, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah. It, it would have been better if he just never said a word about that. But he did have a jealous streak. And it's understandable. I mean, if Paul had been my best friend, I'd have been jealous of him, you know, wouldn't you? you even when you're brilliant yourself, you still think, oh, I can't write. I didn't, I didn't write yesterday. I didn't write, hey, Jude. Paul's really good at that. Oh, God. Bloody Paul. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wonder when they were existing more as a team, like our work is our joint work, uh, you know, whether it was a little easier then yeah. you know, versus by 68, they had sort of fractured and it became a little bit more your song versus my song. But I just wonder if at some point John became a little bit more possessive and, and concerned about getting credit. Yes, he did. It, it, um, it's a, a, a strange thing, really, because he didn't need to. You know, Paul was knocking those songs out, so many, one after the other. And John yeah. just couldn't keep up. Now, John was getting into heroin by this time, so he wasn't helping himself. Why did that happen, Ray? Why Do you have the any heroin. idea why? The heroin? Yeah. No. I'm not sure John had ever tried it until that period. I don't, I'm, I'm sure he hadn't. I'm sure he hadn't. He'd never tell me about it, but he did say, well, you were at cold turkey, he was getting over some, something he'd been doing. He said, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to say which drug because it, it'll, it'll cause all kinds of chaos. But that's what it was. John just couldn't do one thing. He'd have to, I mean, I think Paul said this, he'd always go the whole hog on everything he did. You know, he'd suddenly decide he wanted to be, he wanted to be really cool. He wanted to, to be the, the avant-garde genius songwriter, you know. Or they haven't got genius, yeah. actually. He didn't like his own voice either. That's an interesting thing, I always think. He just didn't like it. Sometimes he didn't recognize his own gifts. No, true, he didn't. It seems like John really wanted to stand out. He was competitive with Paul and wanted to stand out and do something different at the end of the 60s that he'd be recognized for. But it seems to me that Paul always did recognize how good John was. He did. You know? Oh, yeah. Um, and also, Paul knew how good they were together. It's almost like Paul recognized just earlier how good they were. Yeah, Paul did know how good they were. No doubt. Paul knew how good he was too, you know. I mean, Paul, Paul never lacked for ego. He knew how good he was. What's sad about Paul now is that it must be hard for him to live with it, live with this, thinking, well, I could do it so effortlessly in the 60s. I really could. And in the 70s, too. He's broken his own back, in a way, because, you know, no one could ever compete with himself as he was as a young man. It's impossible. Maybe John figured this early. I, I can be something else. I can be a mad genius. That's what he... He always liked the idea of being a mad genius. Um, you know, a crazy genius. But he was. He was. That's the interesting thing. As a Beatle, he was. He, he, he was, yeah. So what was Paul like at that time then? You said that he was all, always very confident about his uh, musical abilities. He's sometimes called an egomaniac, but did you find him that way in 68, 69? He was always great to get on with. I mean, but, you know, he knew how good he was. There's no doubt about that. But he was very approachable, very it was nice, but he did have huge ego. And well, who wouldn't if you're if you're a Beatle and you've written all those songs? You know, it'd be impossible not to think, "My God, I'm good." It was his ego bigger than John's? No, I think they both they both had enormous <laughs> egos. Also, it's impossible to look back now and realize 
just how amazingly famous they were. Nothing compares with them. I mean, no entertainment act compares with... It wasn't just fame. It was expectation. We always expected them to come up with something fantastic all the time. And imagine the pressure on you to, to have to think, you've got to keep doing it, fellas. We've got to do it again next year, you know, on and on and on. And Paul was finding it quite easy at the time. I think John was finding it more difficult, you know, as would anybody else in the world. Uh, but Paul was going through a very hot spell. His hottest spell ever, I think, to be honest. 66 to 70, yeah? Did you like Paul with a beard or with no beard? Oh, good question. Actually, I got used to the beard in the end. Paul had quite a good beard. Yeah, that, that was okay. He looked older. He looked more mature with a beard. I quite like the beard, actually. Yeah, come to think of it. I'd never thought of it before. It Paul. <laughs> yeah. You haven't spent a lot of time thinking about Paul's beard. <laughs> no, no. Well, he's an attractive man. You know, always has been. Um, yeah. When he was young, he had a little boy look, you know. When he got the beard, he looked grown up. Um, manly and all that and he he had a wife and children to to support so it's all right yeah I always think it's interesting that he had that when he got together with Linda it's like that stage of his life he wanted to be more fatherly and that kind of thing you know yeah yeah I can understand that though also you know they were growing away from being the mop top you know boy bands didn't have beards when he was when he became a famous composer which he did songwriter he, he could wear a beard and he looked grown up yeah, when, when they didn't need to appeal in that way. Yeah, sure, he didn't. You became closest to John and Yoko in the 70s, I think, in terms of like time spent with them. And was that correct? Well, in terms of time spent with them, yeah. But I always considered myself and tried to be completely even-handed with both John and Paul. And I'd tell things that Paul had said to me and John would say, would be amazed. He said, I didn't know that. And I said, well... You know, he told me things like that, you know. So, but at the time, John and Yoko made themselves very available to me and invited me down to Tiddenhurst Park a lot and, you know, and took me to Canada and then took me to the US and, you know, um, where Paul now had his new wife and, you know, baby and things. So, but I saw less of him. But, you know, I don't think Paul ever resented it. He was quite, you know, he didn't resent me seeing more, more of John. I mean, he didn't care. Right. He'd got other things to care about, really, to be honest. I was, yeah. you know, I'd have been a small a small figment in his imagination, you know. <laughs> right. Did you ever interview Paul after the, the 60s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I interviewed him two or three times in the 60s and 70s and 80s, too. When the anthology came out, I went down to see Paul at his um, windmill studio down in Sussex. Mm-hmm. We spent the afternoon together. It was quite interesting because we were talking about when John died. And he was telling me how he'd heard, and I told how I'd heard. And it was really sort of bizarre to sort of treating John like an equal friend, you know? Uh, and that was right. an interesting situation. Um, but, you know, we always got on. I'd heard at 4.30 UK time, yeah, that John yep. had, been, had been shot. And at five o'clock in the morning, I per- turned on the BBC World Service, and they confirmed he was dead. So I spent the next day writing about it. I was going to go and see him, but obviously I didn't go. Instead, I spent the day writing for several newspapers and things and doing a lot of radio things. Yeah. Anyway, when I went to see Paul, he said they hadn't heard overnight because they turned the phone off. Him and Linda turned the phone off overnight. And they, they, then he had the awful choice. What do we do? What do I do? 
And he probably chose the wrong one because he, he thought, just carry on, go to work. Yeah. Um, so he, he got in the car and they both drove to London. They were recording at the time, I think. And um, yeah. the newspaper guy said, what do you think about John dying? And he just said, it's a drag or something like that. But yeah. he didn't mean it in that sense. He didn't know what to say. But then he said, but the truth is that it sounded terrible. And I could understand why. And then he said, "I um, many the time I've sat at home in the evening with a glass of whiskey and I've got tears in my eyes thinking about the times we had together, you know. And, yeah. but, and I wish I'd never said it's a drag, but he did. Um, yeah. And that went down sort of, you know. Very callous, you know, and uncaring versus the fact that I assume he was devastated. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in several ways, one of a close friend since he was like 14 had died, who he'd worked yeah. with. And only they could know what it's like to be Lennon and McCartney. You know, they were the most famous people in the world. And the other half yeah. had died. That's that thing. But also, you know, I'm sure he had harbored thoughts that one day he and John would work, would work together again. He'd like to have done that. And they talked about it. They'd never done it. But it must have been in the back of his head all the time. One day we'll get together and we'll sit down and we'll enjoy it and, and it'll be good. And he knew now that could never happen. He could never go back to what it had been. And that's pretty hard. You know, he did admire John tremendously. And John gave him an awful lot of... It helped him. John was so certain about things. Even when he was wrong, you know, he was still certain about yeah. it. That was John. And, and Paul, you know, it must have been terrible for him. I mean, really. Yeah. Yep. I always thought <clears throat> that when the Beatles broke up, it was like a divorce, you know. He imagined his life going forward with the Beatles and writing songs with John and helping each other and getting along. And, and suddenly... His life had come to an end at that point. What to do next? Well, he had he had he had to write and sing. That's what he did. That's all he knew. I mean, I remember him saying to me, "That's all I've ever done. I don't know anything else. I can't be a whatever a carpenter. I can't be you know. That's all I can do is that." And without John, he must have thought, "Well, can I do it by myself?" He didn't know. Now, by the time John died, ten years later, he discovered he could do it by himself. At the same time, he could never go back to what he what they'd had. And that must have been right. very hard for him. I, I did feel sorry for him all the time. Well, there is there is discussion that John and Paul were already in talks yeah. of potentially getting back together at that time. Well, you know, it was possible. I know that when John was with Mei Pang, he met Paul. And when Paul was going to go down to New Orleans to make an album, um, he said, yep. why, why don't you come? Well, John didn't go. Instead, he went back to live with Yoko. And then they'd met, at, I think Paul had gone around to the Dakota. You know, they talked about going on Saturday Night Live or something like that, you know, and, but they never did. But it was always there possible, you know, they were talking again. Yeah. It was a possibility, you know, and then it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, Yoko came out a while ago and said that John definitely wanted that in 1980 he thought that they had all sort of had enough space that they could get back together and that that was what he wanted so i'm sure that you know given the right situation john would happily have, have sat down with paul and, and had a couple of guitars facing each other well i remember it. some people that were around them in in 74 in the last weekend said that john always was interested in getting back with paul uh from john to get back with paul so i yeah. think if paul was feeling it john was too um it was there Apart from being the Beatles, they also had this joint pact as songwriters. I know John would fret about how Paul got all his Paul's songs were more melodic, but that didn't matter because when they were, when they were together, they sort of lived off each other. They worked off each other, and that's what that's what made them special. Equally with George Martin, they needed someone like George Martin to put their thoughts into music. 
you know. Oh, George Martin was such a huge part. And I think that he, he hasn't gotten enough credit, actually, I think, in the Beatles story. He was incredible. And um, I got to know George pretty well, especially in later years. I did a TV series with him and um, he loved to talk about the Beatles sessions, you know. I mean, he just liked talking about them. And so really? when did, like when we did this, when we did that, you know, and how they'd put the strings on Eleanor Rigby and... On yesterday, it had four strings, and on yeah. Eleanor Rigby, it had eight strings. Right. Things, things like this, and he loved to talk about things like that. And uh, you know, and I once said to him, when "Please Please Me" came out in the states, it got banned by some radio stations because it seemed to be talking about sex. And when it came out in England, it never occurred to anybody that it was about sex. I don't remember anyone saying. Please, please, please me like I please you. You know, we never thought yeah. about that. But of course, when you listen to the lute, you think, oh, crumbs, yeah. And I said, did you realize, George, that they were probably singing about sex? He said, no, nope, yeah. I didn't, but I'm sure it crossed the boys' minds. <laughs> That's funny. It was so much more proper in the UK, I guess. Okay, so I just want to circle back on something you said. You said that John left... Paul because he wanted to be with Yoko. Now, I assume you mean as a creative partnership, right? Yeah, yeah. But but, but you know, the Beatles came across as being four brothers. That's what we thought yeah. of them, like four brothers. Yeah. You know, in fact, I've written about them a few times. They were a family. There was John was the sort yes. of John was the sort of uh, how to describe him. It was the um, it was the father figure. And he was the boss and he was the noisy one and he'd do things, you know, which are sometimes crazy and disruptive. Paul was always more like the mother figure who made sure it all worked in the family, the one that looked after them, the important one in that respect. John was the young genius who, you know, might blow the whole thing if you're not careful. And then George was like a truculent teenager, I always thought, always yeah. whinging about something. He was always upset. He was, a good reason he was being left out. So... And then you had Ringo, who was a sort of happy-go-lucky younger one, although he wasn't yeah, younger yeah. really. But that's that's how it looked to me. So when when they broke up, it was like, it was like a divorce in a family. And right, right. Okay. So when you say that John was the genius, do you think John was the genius one between John and Paul? I think they were equal. I'd use the I wouldn't ever use the word genius to be honest for anybody, um, but they were equally incredibly talented and. The, the sum of the, of the two was greater than the than the yes. two halves, you know. If the two halves you know, so, were brilliant, the sum of the two were like that times three, you know. Yeah. So but, I talked to, I interviewed Chris Salovich, who wrote a bio of Paul in the yeah. 80s, and I yeah. interviewed him. And his perspective is that John is the more was the more maternal one and Paul was the more paternal one, which personally I see when I see them as well. I think Paul is the more the boss in terms of just the, taking all the actions, but you know, you knew them. So. Well, Paul was the, you know, Paul it was ever busy and he still is, you know, he still, he still keeps working away. It was ever, ever busy. He, he always had to be doing something. John could easily sort of say, oh, well, I'm not going to do anything for the next six months and, 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 and do whatever he did, you know. Right. But did you get the sense did you get the sense that John was the boss of the Beatles or were they co-leaders? By by the time I was involved, they were co-leaders. Um I think early on John was not the boss is the wrong word. He was the more strident and the pushier one. He was the one who would if someone had to sort of stand up to authority, he'd do it. If someone had to go out on stage and talk to the Queen Mother or the Queen, whatever it was, 
he'd do it. They say, you better do yeah. that job. He'd do those yeah. sort of jobs for them. And Paul was, you know, Paul being very musical was probably pushier in the studio. He was. John used to complain about that, that George Martin gave Paul more time in the studio, which is probably not true, but that's, no, how, he, that's how he perceived it, though. And perception is everything. It isn't what it actually happened. It's the way John saw it. And that's right. what I said yesterday. John was jealousy of Paul a bit, you know, which he had no reason to be jealous of Paul, but reason had nothing to do with it. Like, we all know these feelings. But... Yeah. So when you say that, like, I always see that the discussion about Paul and Yoko, to me, is always confusing because... John leaves Paul for his romantic interest. Like there's a such a, it becomes so convoluted because Yoko and Paul are not equal. You know, it's not like they were both just his creative. Like John leaves the Beatles for his romantic partner and does some creative stuff with her, doesn't songwrite with her. No. So it, it always becomes a weird statement to me when people say that John left Paul for Yoko. It's like, well, Paul and John, as far as I know, were not romantic partners, you know? They weren't. No, not at all. But they were best friends. And it's like when your best friend gets a girlfriend and suddenly he, he's got no time for you because you don't see his girlfriend all the time. Well, Paul had a girlfriend. I wasn't quite the same. Yoko was very demanding. You can't understand how demanding she was. It wasn't like a girlfriend. She was monopolizing and she wanted to be in all the sessions. She wanted to be there. And John liked it. And because it was then doing heroin, you know, and heroin's like having a mate along with some heroin addicts, yeah? yeah. Um, so, you know, and it drove the other Beatles crackers. And they were very patient at first, but, you know, the, the incredible fame. And it's fame like nobody had ever known before. You know, trying, you know. So was he tire, tired of it or was he exhausted by it? Or I think all four were exhausted by it because they, they started, you know, since 1962 when they've made their first record until 19, 1969, yeah. Mm -hmm. They just never stopped. They just yeah. never stopped work. And the output is extraordinary. You think, well, yeah. how could they do it? How could they do it? And I think right. I always thought that one of the reasons for the breakup was that they had a sort of a group nervous breakdown. They just couldn't they just couldn't carry on. But Paul could. Paul was behind the things with it. He had all these songs still written. John then falls in love with a very demanding and very demanding woman who demands his full attention and demands her full immersement in the in the music and in everything they do although she knew bugger all about it. Didn't seem to bother her at all. And John went along with it. I'm sure he, she convinced him that she was going to make him something different and that he written all, the, all his pop songs. I remember, do you remember that song? Every little thing she does, she does for me. Yeah, that one. I yep. used to love that one. And yep. he said, oh, we couldn't do things like that anymore. And I thought, why yep. not? Why not? Well, that's my point, Ray, is that sometimes like this is why I get a little bit um, frustrated when I hear the story is like the other three had matured and, you know, had moved beyond the Beatles. And Paul's commitment to the music and sort of like the fact that he was in love with making that music is always kind of positioned as a bad thing. But to your point, those songs are what lasts these days. Why, why was it a bad thing to be still committed to? I know, I know. It's what they what they did. They were great songwriters together, and you tear them apart, and they'll be, they'll be songwriters, but they weren't as good. And I think Paul probably realised that. Well, he would have realised that because he's not an idiot. And I think John yeah. probably realised that later on too. That he he didn't he he didn't find it 
quite so easy anymore. When they were together, they were sparking each other off all the time. When they were apart, who would spark them off? Yoko didn't spark off John in the same way. You know, there's no way. I mean, you listen to some of John's tracks, and they were okay, but I, I very rarely sing them. You know, I sing Mother, you look that one. I sing that one, what yeah. else? I sing a few of them, but um, not in the way that, you know, those wonderful songs in River Soul and Revolver. You know, I have listened to Yoko's audio diaries from 1968, from when she first got together. Have you ever heard those? She she recorded herself in like May 1968 while at a Beatles session. And it was actually interesting to me that she's so afraid that John is going to leave her. And she's constantly saying, I miss him. And I can see what you're saying that she... She both was very needy for him and also was shockingly insecure herself. Well, she may well have been. Uh, yeah. But, but, you know, she did drop her husband in favor of John. She was married for the second time. Yep. And Tony Cox was elbowed when John came along. You know, so I think that um, I think having having bagged a beetle, you know, you would never have to worry anymore about anything in a financial sense. And, and until then, she would have had to because she was a very little known artist. Suddenly, she's a very famous person. And, you know, what would have happened to Yoko if John had walked away? In her terms, in her terms, she'd have disappeared. And she knew that. She's not stupid. She's a very clever woman. Yeah. Which happens to so many wives. Poor Cynthia. In a way, yeah. she disappeared a bit, you know. Yeah, she did. He behaved very badly over Cynthia. He behaved badly often. But, you know, we all make mistakes. Yeah. You mentioned going to see John in uh, 19, I guess, 69 at Ronnie Hawkins's place. Yeah. Ronnie Hawkins actually gave an interview recently, and he said that Yoko left notes. He was, he was confused because he said, John seems so powerful, and yet there was notes all over the house about what John could and couldn't do from Yoko. And so did John like the idea of being controlled? Yes, because Yoko became the same thing as a manager. And at the end of his last, last 10 years, Yoko was in charge. And he didn't have to worry about anything because, well, that's five years late. When he left Yoko in 1974 for his 18 months with uh, May Pang, yeah. he didn't know where the money was coming from because they were all held up by lawyers and things. When he yeah. came back, Yoko was running everything. And that just suited John fine because he didn't want to have to be bothered about it. He wasn't interested in business. Yoko was his person on the Apple board. She did all the, all the deals. She fixed all the things, you know. He loved all that. That's that's what she was good at. And she made yeah. him very rich. Yeah. So in yeah. a way, I can, I can understand when he when he went back to live with Yoko and left May Pang, a bit like returning to the mothership, he called Yoko mother. And in a way, she was, not in the motherly sense, but in the way the mother runs the home. And Yoko ran the ran the, the Dakota building, you know, their apartments yeah. and the staff. Yeah. And, and she looked after all the contracts and things. He didn't care. He was not, wasn't interested. He had all these things going on, but he didn't really follow it. I mean, yeah. Um, Can we go to that, that, that period? Because that's such an interesting period. Were you surprised when they separated? Yes, I was. I'd called that morning. I called to talk to John about something from London. And Yoko said, oh, it's not here. It's in California, which is a surprise because, you know, the idea that John would go there without Yoko was seen. They'd been inseparable for five years by then, or four years, whatever it was, yeah? And yep. so I said, oh. Then she said, you never guess who he's with. I said, well, go on, tell me. And he said, well, he's with May. Oh, really? And then she said. Was she upset? No, 
no, she was very sort of together about it. And she said, well, it can be very difficult to live with. And I thought, well, I'm sure, I'm sure, sure he can be. And Cynthia mm-hmm. certainly found that. But um, and then she explained how they'd been to a party at Jerry Rubin's, that story about and how John had got off with a girl there. And they'd gone into the next room and had sex. And people couldn't get in and get the coats because they were in, in the bedroom. Everyone was very embarrassed, which you would be. And uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it wasn't a very nice thing to do, let's face it. Um, no, it's horrible. You know, and so so I think that really upset her. And then I, I, I heard from May later that Yoko rang them every day anyway. So she was keeping an eye on John the whole time. And she regarded it. She provided, in a way, a mistress for... I mean, it was her suggestion. She was running the whole thing, you see. This is much easier for John. He didn't have to sort of go out and try and score, score a girl. Right. It would provide boring, you know. I mean, it wouldn't have been difficult, but it would be still sort of, you know, he hadn't been on the loose right. as a single man. I mean, he got married very young, so and they went straight from Cynthia to Yoko, so, you know. Right, he wasn't a really big player in terms of, like, somebody who could go out and date women, you know, so. No, he wasn't. I mean, there were women in Liverpool when he was going out with Cynthia. He had, a, he had a couple of girls on the side that Cynthia never knew about, or she first found yeah. out later. But And, you know, he had little flings, but never in public. It, it was never sort of like these famous film stars who you see with a different girl every night, or it seems yeah. like that. He yeah, wasn't like yeah. that. But he seems, like, later on, he actually made some uh, some comments about being in love with May Pang. And then I know May is confused about what happened in 74, you know, that she and John were back in New York. They were looking at places on Long Island and talking, you know, he was talking about going to see Paul in New Orleans. Yeah. And then just one night, John goes back to Yoko and then it's over, you know? Yeah, I know. It's a um, terrible shock for May because then... He- then she must have realized that, you know, for all John talking about feminism and all these things, he and Yoko behaved very badly towards May, really. You know, that May looked after him for 18 months, whatever it was. Yeah. And then suddenly she just dropped like that. But of course, John did continue to see her secretly. So, okay, so if he's still seeing May, he's still attracted to her. What was it that drew him back to Yoko at that point? I think Yoko was like the mothership. And... You know, when he, he was living in a little apartment in Manhattan and suddenly yep. he can go back to this huge, huge apartment and where there the were servants to do things for them and everything's taken care of. It's like, it's like, <laughs> you don't realize that he could probably do the same thing. Well, he could, but, you know, that was not the way John worked. He didn't think about things like that. All he would have seen was, I can come home here and everything will be taken care of. I needn't worry. Yep. And I'll, see, I'll still see May now and again. You know, and he and Joker would still be good friends. You know, they they got on in their own sort of a kind of cookie way, but they got on. Um, yeah. You know, and so I I did understand why he would go back. It's a bit like going back to school again. You know, everything's taken care of. You know where you are. You know where the class is. You know all these things, and your holidays are over now. You got to go back and be grown up. Yeah, yeah. I always wonder if. Maybe, you know, because the timing is interesting, given that I think that Yoko's quite threatened by Paul and that the, yeah, this was. was right around the time when John was about to go to New Orleans. It's interesting that Yoko, that that didn't happen. He w- went back with Yoko at that point. I always wonder if maybe that 
scare John or that scared Yoko or something happened. It's just like the, the, that's the closest that Lennon and McCartney ever got to getting back together. And then it, well, it was certainly it was certainly frightened Yoko because I always thought, well, I'll tell you something that always I never understood why I was so welcome with Yoko. And I was. Yeah. And and she said, let's take Ray, whatever it was. Yeah. That sort of thing. I came to the conclusion that I was no threat, where Paul was a threat, you know. So it was okay to have me around, because, um, or for him to be with Ringo, whatever, you know, because well, if Paul was around, Paul would have been a threat to everything, because Paul would have wanted John for, him, for him, himself, you know. And, In what way? Well, as a musical partner, you know. They were good at it, and they knew they were good at yeah, it. Yoko um, wasn't writing with John as a musical partner. He didn't. Well, he didn't have a musical partner when he was with Yoko. He just didn't right. have one. So yeah. when John was with Paul, yeah. they could always try things out on each other. And, but but here's something I don't understand, Ray: is why is Yoko so worried about that? And apparently, Linda McCartney was quite supportive of the idea of John and Paul getting back together. And Paul does not need John at this point either. You know. No, so but, what's the difference there? There's a difference between two different women completely. Linda McCartney was a Beatles fan, and Yoko never understood rock and roll at all. She just didn't get it, you know, and she didn't see that it was a, you know, that boys like bands. And Yoko wanted to be an equal partner. She had a huge ego and wanted to be, wanted to be like five Beatles. And right. But but that's always confusing because she wasn't a musician. <laughs> I know, but that, but, but that wouldn't bother Yoko. I mean, she'd think she was. She thought that her avant-garde, you know, interpretation of things. I mean, she'd listen to them. You know, there's that film with, when she's with Phil Spector, they're doing Imagine. Is it, I think they're doing Imagine on that one, yeah? Um, yeah. And, and she's telling them how to play. She's telling George Harrison how to play his guitar. You think, for God's yeah. sake, woman, don't you realize that these people have been doing it since they were 10? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. Or 12. And that's what they do for a living. And they're some of the best in the world at this, these people are. Yeah, I mean, but okay, so I'm going to just float a theory to you and just get your take on it. I sometimes think that John is somebody who more needed everything in one person, whereas Paul maybe separated the people in his life, like my, you know, creative partner, Linda's my romantic partner. I just wonder if Yoko was a little bit worried that if Paul and John rebonded musically if, you know, John would rebond with Paul emotionally too. I'm sure she was, yeah. And in her terms, she was right to think that way because that would have happened. Or it could well have happened. We don't know it would have happened. It could have happened, couldn't it? Um, and I can see why she'd think that that way and why anyone who got too close to John in a musical sense or in that sort of way would be a threat um, yeah. May, she just saw May as a pretty girl who would look after him and take care of him and there'd be sex. And that, But that yeah. didn't, that seems not to have bothered her at all. She wasn't bothered by that. It's interesting. She's more worried. She's more threatened by people that could be potential creative partners to John yes. than romantic. Yeah. That's a good way. Of, that's a good way of saying it. Yeah. Well, I always, I always think that's interesting because it suggests to me that She's very worried about the John Yoko creative partnership. I think she's worried that if John got back with, with Paul and the Beatles, where would she be? She'd be the avant-garde forgotten wife and people wouldn't have taken her seriously anymore. She was unknown when she came to London. Right. 
pretty well unknown. I mean, a few people in New York have known about it, but not, not very yeah. many. Then she then she got her her live stream of being this incredibly famous woman, and you know, her name is on everything. It's on things like co-produced by. You know, well, come on, she was she wasn't a record producer. The idea that she co-produced Imagine or she, that she co or that she half wrote Imagine it was just yeah. um, just John being nice. You know. Did you ever see them writing songs together or collaborating musically when you were there? They didn't. You know, later on, there was that thing about, um, in the past few years, <coughs> it's been said that Yoko says that she co-wrote Imagine, yeah? And, you know, and she wanted that to be on the record. When John first played me Imagine, he just turned to Yoko. I remember it so distinctly. We're in the bedroom, lying on the floor, with this little record player because he couldn't make his proper things to work he had these very expensive equipment he couldn't make it work so yeah. he said play it on this and we played it and then he just said yoko ray thinks imagine should be the a side and she said yeah. oh yeah i like that one too now she, she didn't say yeah i wrote half that one she didn't say that she said i, I, I like that one too as though it was just another song you know right whatever yeah whatever talent yoko has and you know she may have many. Yes. Um, she wasn't a songwriter. Well, and, and you know, it's that thing about if she had been a songwriter, what are the songs that she wrote on her own without John? I mean, she did write songs, but no one can sing any. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, she had some interesting albums after she was with him. It's just she didn't come to the collaboration as a songwriter, you know? No. Okay. So I want to return to a couple of things that we talked about last time. Um, you know, you mentioned the story, the letter story, which is really, really fascinating that, you know, when you saw John in 1971, yeah. uh, that he had said he wanted you to bring a letter back to Paul. Yeah. Yeah. He and Paul were not getting along. Why did he want you to go and intercept because he didn't think he could call Paul himself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was what, behind it. Well, he thought, he said, if I ring Paul... We were screaming at each other within within seconds. You go, and you know, and maybe there'll be a way of doing it. He just thought I still got on with Paul. I'd never fallen out with anybody, and um, yeah, yeah. so that was the idea. But uh, yeah. obviously, anyway, I couldn't get to Paul. I don't know where he was, and I spoke to his father a couple of days later, and he said, uh, "Oh yeah, we know that this way. Forget about it. I'd forget about it, son, if I were you." Things have moved on since then. And that was it. So I, thought, I forgot about it. So was Jim quite protective of Paul at that yes. point? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the sun shone out of Paul, you know, for his father. Right. His father just was so proud of him. And so was he Was he disgusted by the situation between the Beatles? Well, he'd, or... have, been up, he'd have been upset and wondering what's going to happen to everybody, but it'd have been absolutely on Paul's side completely. Um, right. You know, but, you know. Right. I didn't get involved in all that. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it suggests to me that Paul wasn't particularly open at that point to being nice to John, you know, or well, he'd been, open. He'd been treated very badly, you know. I mean, Paul felt really, really hurt when they, they'd hired Alan Klein to be the manager, totally against what he wanted. And Alan Klein had then remixed with Phil Spector, you know, and Paul was just not involved. And uh, and they said some quite unkind things about it each other actually paul never did say unkind things about john john said unkind things about paul i mean later on paul sang about too many people going under that one yeah. remember that yeah uh, that wasn't 
a particularly unkind song, but John came back with that terrible thing about uh, how do you sleep, you know? Yeah. And yeah. What did you think of that at the time? I mean, that was Imagine, you know? Yeah, I said to, I remember saying, won't Paul be upset by this? And he said, yeah, I don't care. It's true. And I said, well, you know, there you go. But then, really, that's how he felt. Is he's like, I don't care. I mean, obviously, yeah, he, he he's did. a bit of a hit song. Well, he, you know, but, well, he did care. Obviously, that's why he sang it. You know, he'd been hurt. The only thing you done was yesterday, and things are gone. It's just another day. Both great songs, actually. Um, yeah. But um, it was that was Johnny. It could it could be quite vindictive. I mean, I remember. He talked about his father, you know, mother, you left me. That, and then, father, yeah. you left me if I didn't leave you, yeah? Yeah, um, yeah. And I said, your dad is going to really hate this, you know. And he said, well, it's true. He did leave me. I didn't leave him. Why would I care? Yeah. He was here last week and I, and I showed him the door. I didn't want to have him. And it's true. He had kicked him out. His father and his new wife had gone around to see John and Yoko. John had gone down the stairs in a, a fury and and ran to his father and throw him out of the house, you know. Uh, and he, didn't, he never saw him ever again, which is really sad, you know. I mean, I mean, his dad was harmless, you know. Well, it's, okay, so let's to go, go back to how do you sleep, because that's pretty fascinating to me. I, I agree that too many people, you know, it, why was John so upset? And to me, that's sort of commensurate with how much John does care about what Paul says and Absolutely. does, the fact that. Yeah. He got that upset, you know, when Paul's a little bit critical of him. Yeah, well, he was um, it was kind of victim thing, you know. He, he felt Yoko was a victim. He did like victims. He liked Alan Klein because he was a victim. He thought he was a working-class guy who'd done well, yeah? And yeah, yeah. Yoko was a rich woman, but she was Japanese. And, you know, he felt that there's a racist thing there about it. I never saw it. John got it into his head. Paul was getting at him. So he wrote this terrible song, you know. Did John feel like the victim himself? He wanted to be. He wanted to be the victim. He wanted to be a more working class person than he ever was. This myth about about a working class hero, something to be. Well, he was never a working class hero. He went to a very nice school and he lived in a very nice house, (laughs) you know. Uh, Yeah. and you know they were better off than most most people. He'd gone to school. Did with. he not? Did he not see Paul potentially as? Well, I assume he didn't. But did he not see Paul as a victim of their sort of three to one scenario? He wouldn't have seen Paul as a victim. Um, no, he 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 liked being seeing himself to an extent as a revolutionary and a working class victim. Yeah, and he wasn't. Yes. And he wasn't. He, he just imagined it. Um, yes. You know. It, I always think that too. Just yeah, it. Sure. Energizes them. But it, but he, he certainly wasn't. And um, but you know, we are what we think of ourselves. Yeah. I, I suppose it, it, it would have thought of Paul as being bourgeois. I suppose in those in those senses. Why? Uh, Why is Paul any more bourgeois than John is? Well, he wasn't. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the. That's the stupidity of it. Paul was much more working class than John ever was, but um, John liked to liked to think of himself as this revolutionary young working class hero. They, I'm always so confused, Ray, when I when I look at that time and they're positioning Paul as the establishment, and then I look at the photos of Paul living on his bare bones farm with Linda, yeah, yeah. like they're be dippies, and I think, how did the world buy into this story? 
don't ask me. I did my best to, to tell it the way it really was, but um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, people believe what they want to believe, you know. And um, right. you know, right. so, I, I, it was a bare bones farm, but but you know, he could have had anything he wanted on it, but he chose not to. So in a way, that's the sort of he was a, a multimillionaire who could do whatever he wanted. Why do you think Paul was attracted to that? He liked all that, and he still likes it. So eventually, um, Scotland's an awful long way from England. And so he bought himself a, a nice farm in Sussex, um, mm-hmm. and he'd go there, and that's where he bought his his entire family up. And um, he liked it. He didn't want to live when he got married to live the fast life. He wanted to be have as normal a life as possible, and he did. You know, give him give him credit, he did. And those children grew up in a very nice part of the world. We had friends yes, who lived in the house next door, is about half a mile away. Um, and the land backed onto Paul's land, and you see them down there. And you, I thought, well, he likes this; he feels secure here, you know. Anyway, yeah. Have you heard that he and Linda had a fairly good relationship? Yeah, absolutely. I've never heard anything other. I'm sure he was hard to live with because musicians are, but you know, they were never apart from for a minute. They were had a very good relationship. Um, and she was she was very very nice, you know. I always liked her. She was a very very nice person, and um, yeah. And and you know she supported him, and he felt just very comfortable with her, you know. Yeah. She wasn't a great beautiful glamour queen, you know. Yeah. That you see on the front of Vogue or whatever. Mm-hmm. She was just a very very nice person, and you can see why he liked her, why they got on, you know. You know, oh. I can see that. Yeah. Her own artistry has always been so underplayed, you know. Oh, she could take pictures, all right. Yeah, she's good at that. Yeah. So you know, I, I assume yeah. they would have had overlap but, between sort of their view of the world, or. Well, they both like they both like the country. If you listen to yes. Paul's albums, they was always on about going on on about the country. Um, <laughs> it's true about nature. They were they were both sort of, but everybody was in those days, sort of anti-war and all these things. And, um, yeah, that would be not unreasonable. Um, but she was, yeah, I liked her. She liked. Her. Did he seem crazy about her when you know when you talk about John being in love? Did Paul seem equally in love? Well, Paul wouldn't show it in the same way. John was much more. Um, he'd bang on about it, you know. But then John would bang on about everything. He, he couldn't do something in halves. I mean, Paul always said this. But John would, John would make an awful lot of a lot of everything, you know. Where Paul was, you know, much more, it was more discreet in many ways. It, it, it was, you know, that was Paul, you know, it, it, but um, yeah, they were, they were a very good couple. It was a tragedy when, it's a tragedy when she died, you know, it was a real tragedy because, you know, it must have been very hard for someone as famous as Paul to suddenly realise that he's on his own again, you know. And yeah. The point is, his mother had died and now his wife's died, you know, and, you know, I did feel very sorry for him. And she was so young. They were so young. Like, they were just in the middle of their life, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was um, very hard on him. And he took it very badly. Took it very badly. Yeah, he took it very badly. I mean, I don't think we've talked since then, actually. But you heard that he he took it hard? Oh, yeah. That was quite well known among people who were involved in these things. I mean, think think about having been involved with the Beatles once. You're yeah. always involved with them after that because yeah. you were part of a little coterie of people who were involved. And we all talked to each other from time to time, you know. Yeah. 
we, we were all very fond of the Beatles were, were sort of for us they weren't these huge superstars I mean they were but we didn't see them that way because we got to know them so well um, and so we speak fondly of them because we know the world the world is still obsessed with them but we're not but we 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 think about them and so when something happened like poor Linda died we all sort of express our regrets and, and how sad it was and, and remember things that, you know, how, how, how good they were together. Um, I want to talk to you about um, the interview from the, the Ray Connolly archives, which is such a good resource. You have the interview that Paul gives to you right after he, um, about two weeks after he supposedly quit the Beatles. Yeah, he calls yeah. you up and, yeah. and says, I want to clarify my position. Is is that yeah. sort of what, what happened? Yeah, sure. He, 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 I was at home and he rang the Evening Standard where, where I worked. And by yeah. that time I was working from home a lot. And my, the secretary gave him my phone number. So he rang me at home. And he said, "Can you, will you interview me, please? Can we have lunch? So I yeah. said, yeah, when? He said, why not right away to today? So I said, okay. <laughs> so I got in my car and drove into Soho and we went to yep. Wheeler's restaurant. And it was strange to do an interview about such a public thing in front of lots of other people, but he didn't seem to care. Um, and uh, he went on, you know, and I tape recorded the whole thing. Yeah. Right. Yep. You wrote here, I'm just quoting you, he had been a king who had abdicated the convulsion of disappointment and accusations. Uh, and then you say young people wondered if they had really been betrayed by one of their favorite human beings. Is that how bad and how betrayed people felt by Paul? It was worse than that. It was terrible. He was, he, I really felt for him. God, he was hated. It was really hated. Um, and that's why he rang me up, thinking I've got to do something about this. Uh, right. It had come out wrongly somehow, and he, he hadn't sort of seen what was going to happen. And, and, and I can see why you'd, you'd be upset. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. there were people outside Apple who were, who were so upset, and girls crying, and people all around the world are headlines about how can Paul do this? That I'm right. Paul, the one they'd all loved, and now Paul's broken up the best band in the world. And, yeah, because the Beatles were more than just a musical band; they were, they were a family. It's right. it's like you know they were in people's eyes, and they weren't, but in people's eyes they were. Yeah, I mean, you know what gives credence to Paul's perspective that he didn't really know that it was going to be this big a, uh, you know, brouhaha was there, there's two things. One that he had already said this in life magazine, you know, a few months earlier, he had said the Beatles thing is over yeah, and nobody seemed to notice. And the other thing is, is that Ringo, I found an interview from Ringo, maybe a few weeks before this, where Ringo, somebody asked, how's Paul doing? We haven't heard from him. And he said, he's fine. He just doesn't really want to talk to the press right now. Yeah, And to me that actually supported Paul's perspective perspective that he didn't really want to talk, do a bunch of interviews at the time. So that's, this may have legitimately just been the way that he felt was best to deal with the press when he didn't want to talk to them. Yeah, until it came out. And then, of course, his world fell in because he went from being this most loved person in the world to being the most hated, most well, the most reviled anyway. And so he had to do something about it. And 
I seem to have been the the option. Well, um, it says something to how close you are that he reached out to you and, and gave this yeah, big interview. Well, in those days, I was. But Peter Brown, who worked for them, um, I said to him, what, do you, what did you think of it? And he said, I don't think he needed to do it. It sounded to him as though he'd done it to tell the others what he was thinking and feeling. Yes. And, if yes. he, and if he told them in person, it ended in a screaming match. So he told them through me. Yeah, And he yeah. read it all before it went in the paper. I went to see him yeah. and took it right round to see him. And he read it all. Said, yeah, that's okay. I actually do believe that in some ways. Like It's more of a, it's like a statement of emancipation from Paul, you know? But also a statement to, okay, I've not been able to talk to any of you because we, we get, we're, we're so emotionally involved, all of us. This is what I've been thinking. And this is how it seemed to me. And they went on about Phil Spector problem with Long and Winding Road and all, all those things, you know. And, you know, he was putting his point of view across. So they'd all read. He knew that all, they were all going to read it. And all the staff were going to read it at Apple. And everyone he knew were going to read it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I suppose I was the I was a conduit for all that. And that's fine, I mean. <laughs> yeah, they were sort of talking through you. Yes, I thought. And I'm sure that happened the other way too. I'm sure John said things that think, well, Paul's going to read this. You know, when they couldn't yes. talk, when they couldn't talk to each other, and John would do it through also through the melody maker. It, it'd say things which I was more careful with John when he was when he'd say unkind things about some of the others. I was thinking, well, you know, do you really want to say that? I remember there's something that I printed and I've regretted since. John used to say, well, we were the Beatles. Paul and me were the Beatles. We wrote the songs. And I printed it. And looking back, I think, I wish I hadn't because that would have upset George, maybe not Ringo, it would have upset George quite a lot. And yeah. so I could understand why George didn't want to talk to me. Right. Well, well, you didn't say it. John said it, you know. No, but I used to protect them from, from other things. You know, as a journalist, I was kind of thinking all the time, well, are you sure you want to say this? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, probably wasn't a great journalist. Maybe I, I should have just let them go on. But I'd sometimes say, well, do you really mean that? You know, things like that. Not just to them, to all kinds of, I mean, because if I'd been a, a sharper journalist, I probably wouldn't have got some of the interviews I got. Well, that's what I feel like, Ray, is that you did the right thing by being respectful because you had the relationship with John for well, the rest I didn't, of I didn't want to, to take advantage of people. And yeah. And, um, well, that's why they liked you too, though. So, you well, know, probably I, I would think in that self interview that he does, that he does not say that he said that he has no plans to work with the Beatles. So he doesn't say that the Beatles are over, but he does say that Lennon and McCartney is over. Did he actually say that? Yeah, he did. He did. He he said, do you, like, the question was, do you foresee a time when Lennon-McCartney will be a working partnership again? And he says, no. Right, okay. But, um, but then there's a statement about the Beatles, and he just said, we have no plans right now. So it was basically, like, he, I, I see that as a statement to John. Like, I think he was making a statement to John personally, just like, all right, we're done. I'll still be in the Beatles, but we're done, which, you know, Paul sounds a little bit angry to me in that article. And I think he certainly has reason to be, but. Yeah, he should never have done that. Well, I got that that thing sent around to me uh, the day before it came out and it was not meant to go, go public until the next day. And I read yeah. it. And when I read about they had no plans to record together, I didn't yeah. read that as Paul saying, I've left the Beatles. Right, but, right. But, but a guy at the Daily Mirror, a guy called Don Short, he got a copy and it wasn't meant to go out until the next lunchtime. So I was going to write it the next morning and yep. he put it in the morning paper and broke the embargo on it 
and said, Paul quits Beatles. And yeah. Paul had never said that. Once you said it, there's no going back. And it, and it, and it shot around the world. And of course, I got a phone call, uh, the crack of dawn saying, the Daily Mirror says, Paul's left the Beatles. And I said, well, he didn't actually say that, you know. Yeah. Um, um, anyway, so in a way, I missed the scoop. They, <laughs> well, but you kept the relationship with the guys. And you yeah. got this scoop with Paul a couple of weeks later. But it's interesting that... Like, he's very open with you. He says, I didn't leave the Beatles. The Beatles have left the Beatles. He says, I love the Beatles. I didn't want the party to be over. You know, you make that point, And yet it, it seems like it couldn't be corrected. Is that what happened? Like, it but just couldn't be corrected? At that time, there's no going back. I, I thought that's a great phrase, the Beatles have left the Beatles. I mean, you're right, the Beatles are still there, you know? Yeah. But there's, it's like an empty bandstand, but... They still own the bandstand in, yeah. in like 40, 50 years after, is it? Whatever it is. Yeah, 50 years after. Yeah. And we're still talking about them. Oh, so, yeah. So, yeah. you know, which is amazing. Yeah. None of us thought that would ever happen, I'll tell you. In this article with you, he says a few interesting things. Like the, one of the most famous um, lines in Beatle, you know, book, Beatles books right now comes from this interview with you. This, it, it, and it's kind of like all the context is missed. Paul says to you, personally, I don't think John could do the Beatles thing. Yeah. I don't think it would be good for him. And I always think that's interesting that Paul, like as a creative partner, is kind of like, I get the fact that yeah. he needs to do something else. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was thinking, we're not going to be able to do it like the way we used to do it. So we, we've got to find a way forward for ourselves you know which he did you know right and then this the next line is john's in love with yoko and he's no longer in love with the three of us yeah and that's the line that's always used um you know like that that is kind of like well paul paul's upset because john's in love with yoko but he says here it's taken me a year to realize that they were in love just like me and linda yeah I always find that an odd statement. Did, did Paul, Paul not really believe that John and Yoko were in love? I'm sure he did, but he'd have been thinking, you know, John has had these crushes on women before. This happens and uh, they haven't lasted. And this one was going to last. And he, he could see that. At first, you know, when Yoko would turn up at the recording sessions, they thought we'd just have to put up with it because he'll get bored with it eventually. And then we can go back to the way we used to be. But that, that hadn't happened. Right. I mean, well, yeah, but then he says, just like me and Linda. So it's kind of like, to me, when I'm reading that, I'm like, oh, he's actually realized that they're a romantic couple like he and Linda. He probably thought it's just sex early on. And then right. and then he realized that actually, I think the thing, what, what happened when I think about it is that they became really good friends, John and Yoko. They were chums, you know, and they got on well together. And I can remember being with them when John would tease her all the time. And he just enjoyed teasing her about this this Japanese avant-garde artist who made me, yeah. made me take all my clothes off, you know, this, this sort of thing. Um, right. So they obviously had something going for them in the early days. Yeah, they did. Um, yeah. And, and it wasn't just, it's another girl. It's a girl who hangs around and is, is going to be, it's, and it's about sex. It wasn't just about sex. It was, it was a, a kind of meeting of minds to, to an extent, yeah. Um, but of course, she couldn't offer what Paul offered. John spoke in headlines all the time. It's a dream to interview because, you know, you couldn't go wrong with him. Paul, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul, 
Paul didn't. Paul was, apart from that long interview you're talking about at the moment where he did talk in headlines quite a lot, but usually he was quite careful. And so he didn't want to offend anybody. People liked Paul because he was very charming and friendly and nice, you know. Where John could be abrasive if he felt like it, you know. And then, then in this interview, you say uh, that it was important to Paul to convey to the public that he wasn't some hermit living in the cave, yeah. that he was a happily married man with a good life. You said that throughout lunch, the McCartney sat close together. As Paul talked, Linda squeezed his hand. And whenever he talked about their marriage and family, she put her head on his shoulder yeah. and smiled. And he said, uh, I've got a great wife who I love today more than I did on the day I married her two great kids and a nice house. These are precious moments for me, which which I can waste or I can make the most of. And uh, then he says that I see it now that we all have a great opportunity for a fantastically lucky life. And yes. as he makes the point that they can do something if they want or they don't have to. But, you know, he kind of paints a quite a nice picture with Linda. I think that's exactly how he felt about it. And, you know, um, He'd bunked around a bit and had a lot of girls and things and everything. And then this, this one comes along and and they just want to have a family together. And they, they want to, you know, he wanted to be like ordinary people. And also, he was very rich and very talented. So he knew he could have a, a good life. Um, most people who he'd left in Liverpool were nothing like as lucky as him, you know. Yeah. Um, well, most people in the world, yes. Most people but, in the but, world. But so this is what confuses me about this period is that, you know, you said earlier that Paul went through a very down, depressed time, but he sounds yeah. quite happy with Linda. And, you know, that summer he writes, you know, we've got photos from him in Scotland and he looks quite yeah. happy and he writes all the songs for Ram. And then the yeah. next year he starts Wings. So when when was the period where Paul was so depressed? Oh, well, it was at the start of the bit when uh, it was before Christmas that year. Uh, it would be 1969, wouldn't it? John said, I'm, I'm leaving the Beatles. And Paul just disappeared. He went off to Scotland. And right. the next few months until Christmas, really bleak for him. He didn't know what was going to happen to him. But he talked about that and um, how he was very depressed. And Linda was saying, well, he's got to pull yourself together. You know, and Linda was a, yeah. a, a real rock. And yeah. so he decided that he had these songs and he went back to London and he had a, a tape recorder at home. And then he, he ordered some more stuff from EMI Studios, which was just around the corner from where, where he lived. And yeah. They, and, and they delivered some stuff. Um, yeah. And he makes the point in this article with you that he, once he started doing that and doing it with Linda, he found that he enjoyed it as much as the early days of the Beatles. So that must have been revelatory to him that, OK, I can do this on my own. Well, yeah, but he didn't know until he tried that he could actually do it on his own. But he could play all the instruments, too. That's the other thing about Paul. He, he could play bass, he could play drums, he could play lead guitar, he could play rhythm guitar. He could do all these things, right. which, you know, but until he had to do it and try himself out and see what it was like. He was very keen to know what I thought about his, his album. Very, very keen to know whether it worked or not. And because the songs are so good, it did work. Had the Beatles not broken up, they would have been on the next Beatle album, all of them. You know, that, right. That's a bizarre thought, isn't it? After this, do you think that Paul was over his depression or did that continue? He seemed in a very good mood that, that day when I left him. And yep. It was the first time I hadn't had his phone number in, during the interview, and and I used to phone him, and I couldn't. And he said, sorry, Ray, but 
since Linda's moved in, I'm going to change all that. When you want to talk to me, phone Peter Brown and he let me know. So right. I did. Uh, and that was the change when, I, when actually it was no longer going to be available like that, which is fine. I mean, very few people are available. Very few stars are available to anyone anymore. But in those yeah. days, you could ring people up and they'd ring, <laughs> they, and they'd ring you up. Yeah, it sounds very chummy in those days, but yeah, um, he put a bit of a wall, I guess, to about privacy versus the public self at that point. So do you think after this, do you think that Paul sort of, you know, went through his depression period or did it continue after this? I think it finished when he put his, his album out. I think that then he, he thought he could do it. I think, you know, that was reinforcing his belief, oh, I can do this. If that was Paul's depression period, the couple of months in, in Scotland, all mm. things considered, that is not that bad. You know, well, I don't mean to to underplay his depression, but John, in April 1970, I know nobody connects his checking himself into Janov with the breakup of the Beatles, but as an observer who's studying mm. them, I do. I think, you know, that John went through a very depressed period as well. And, you know, it was very convenient to just say oh, it was all about my parents, which I'm sure, you know, was the root cause of it. But I have to assume that, you know, the stress of the breakup of the Beatles also hugely impacted John and may have led to him spending six months in therapy. Probably. I don't know. It's um, he he didn't seem particularly bothered, particularly worried before he went. But you know, he'd he'd grab onto ideas. This is John all over. He'd grab onto some idea, and he read about this guy. Oh, I'm going to go and see him. Uh, and then he got very depressed when he's doing it. And the result was the that first solo album, which was quite a depressed thing. You know, mother, you left me. It was pretty heavy stuff, really. Um, yeah. Did you think Jana was good for him? I, I, I have no idea, to be honest. I just don't know uh, whether it's good right, for him. Right. It was, right. um, well, you know, the thing was, he'd always, he'd always believe. I, I mean, I'd never, until he, he went there, he never said that health was him crying out for health. It was just a pop song. Then he said, yeah. began to reinterpret it, say, oh, well, I was in need of help all those years ago when I sang health. Well, maybe he was. We had to do it fast because, you know, because we needed a hit. But actually, he could reinterpret his own life through it, um, which we can all do if we all want to do it. But, you know, you can get, you, you can you can see things there that aren't necessarily there, you know. You can you can imagine things that, right. that, that fit a pattern but whether they're actually true or not, you know, he may have thought later on, well, I know he didn't, he, he fell out with his father over yeah. that. He came out and they fell out. And he'd been, he'd been okay to his dad. His dad was a mess, but he was been okay to him. It helped him. Now suddenly he kicks him out and they don't speak until his father's dying in England. And, and John rings him up and you think, it's too late now. But, you know, if he hadn't done the this stuff you know the psychotherapy maybe that would never yeah. have happened but it probably read too much into it you know i mean you can do yeah. that I mean, this happens to people yeah. all the time this is the little podcaster's comment here i wanted to flag what ray Connolly said about john's state of mind before checking himself into janoff in the spring of 1970. now Connolly's impression 
was that John wasn't that upset, that he seemed okay, that this was simply something that was of interest to him, and that only while in therapy did John get depressed. Now, I don't want to contradict Ray at all because I absolutely believe this was how John seemed to Ray. But I also wanted to share Janoff's own recollection of John at this very same time. This is from Philip Norman's book on Lennon, John Lennon, The Life. And he says, when Janoff first met John, he was startled by the intensity of John's emotional devastation. And I'm quoting Janoff here. He said, the level of his pain was enormous. As much as I've ever seen, he was almost completely non-functional. He couldn't leave the house. He could hardly leave his room. He had no defenses. He was decompensating. Janov also said that John was just one big ball of pain. This was someone the whole world adored and it didn't change a thing. At the center of all that fame and wealth and adulation was just a lonely little kid. So I flagged this only to demonstrate how capable John was at posturing and presenting a certain image of nonchalance or unaffectedness by the breakup. Or, you know, maybe it wasn't even a, an image. Maybe when John was talking to reporters, he felt good. But there was another side to John, which Janov saw, uh, which John was able to conceal to reporters, to other people, potentially such as Ray. Now, Ray himself flagged the fact that Paul went through this period of depression after the Beatles broke up and that potentially John did, but he was too macho to show it. Um, and I just think it's important to always remember with John Lennon that he really is able to put on a show. Now, I think Paul McCartney at this time probably did as well. It was only in the years after John's death you know, the, he's had an extra 40 years to talk about his feelings. And it wasn't until the mid 80s that he actually shared how depressed he was after the breakup. And John may have done the same. I just wanted to flag this again, that to somebody who knew John fairly well, I mean, as well as probably any reporter or person outside of John's like inner, inner circle can know John. And at the time of the breakup, he didn't get the impression that John was crushed. And yet John's therapist, had an extremely different point of view. Did you get the sense when you spent uh, time with um, John in the 70s, did you get the sense that he missed Paul as a friend, as a partner? Well, he talked about him quite a lot. So he always wanted to know what he was doing. So does that mean, yeah, he missed him. He talked about him. Um, when you when people talk about some, somebody else, it's because they're on their mind. You don't, you don't talk about people you're not thinking about. So he's thinking about him, but, you know. Well, that's what I noticed from some of the articles that I read, that John circles and talks about Paul a lot. Yeah. And so, you know, all this posturing that he doesn't care doesn't really ring true to me when I think of the fact that he's writing nasty songs and talking about Paul a lot. I think there must be a lot of unresolved stuff there. Well, people would, you know, people would ask him all the time about Paul. Have you seen Paul yet? Is he talking to Paul yet? Uh, what's Paul doing? And he, he knew his answer. But, yeah, he did... He did talk about him when he didn't have to. It, it you know, it, I mean, say things like, have, "Have you heard Paul's new record?" That that sort of thing, you know. What do you think yeah, of it? Yeah. And it, and he wanted to to be told it's not that good, is it? But actually, they were, they were probably quite they were probably quite good at the time. I think I'm sure during the first album on Ram, uh, I was quite impressed by. Ram, I thought it was a lot better album than ever given credit for. Oh, I love Ram. How was um, McCartney received? 
All I think is I, is I loved it and I played it an awful lot. At the time, it was reviewed okay because it was poor, but it was thought to be underproduced. You know, after Abbey Road or after the Let It Be album that Phil Spector mucked yep. around with, it wasn't actually as lush. There wasn't as much going on. I just thought it was Paul at his, at his best in a way. Was it embraced at the time, you know, as a great new album, or were people just so upset that it wasn't the Beatles? Well, they're certainly upset that it wasn't, that it wasn't the Beatles. And yeah. there, would have been, there would have been reviewers saying, oh, God, yeah. it's not the same. But yeah. the songs were still good. The songs were good. Yeah. And, and his yes. voice was good. Um, his voice was great, yeah. He had a great voice, Paul had. It's not as good anymore, is it? But um... <laughs> It's not quite the same, no. I, that's one thing that actually isn't, you know, you hear about Paul being this great songwriter and uh, bass player, but I always think that Paul's voice is not uh, recognized for being as good as it is. You know, well, it really yeah, was he, incredible. He had a lovely voice. A lovely high tenor voice, and he could do a lot yeah. with it. You know, I mean, think about we don't realize about good vocalists. You know, is they appreciate each other's vocals. Yeah, I remember Paul saying about a few years ago, we were driving driving in his car, and he said, "I suddenly heard Jailhouse Rock on it," and I thought, "God, he's a brilliant vocalist, that, that Elvis." Rock stars admire each other. You know, that's what I mean. They may be jealous of each other, but. They admire yeah. each other. No one ever said Mick Jagger had a good voice because he hadn't got a good voice, you know. Um, but Paul McCartney had a lovely voice. Was that recognised? Well, it was, but not as much as it, as it might have been because he had to share it with, with George and, um, and with John, you know. That it, it did have a lovely voice. It was effortless to him. He'd just do it, you know. Yeah. And John didn't like his own voice. I remember being with John one day and we were talking and he read in the paper that, or I read in the paper that someone was saying, well, Tom Jones hasn't really got a very good voice, you see. And I was telling him and he, and he, and he said, he's got a great voice for what he does. You know, you can't compare him with Pavarotti or these sort of people, but he's got a great voice for what he does. But not many of us have got good voices in, in rock music. And I said, foolishly at the time, Paul's got a nice voice because he did. And John looked at me and said, he's got a high voice. I've said the wrong thing, you know. But um, it was true. He did have a high voice, but he had a good voice too. It was, quite, it, it was one of those really funny moments. You think, oh, crumbs. I've, I've touched a nerve there. I guess there wasn't that. One more question about Klein. At the time, like it seems to me, it's surprising when I read about the early 70s. Like when I read the different accounts like there was stuff in the papers about Klein. Yeah. And read the, the interviews that Paul gave to you at the time and you know, that he gave to, like, it seems to me that Paul laid out a pretty clear case that he just did not trust or like Klein. And that, I'm wondering, did everybody else just miss that at the time? Did nobody see that Paul was probably right to have been concerned about this guy? Well, clearly they didn't. Clearly that John and that John didn't. Um, the people at Apple thought that. Uh, people like Peter Brown and Derek Taylor and Neil, we all thought that, that um, Klein was bad news, just really, really bad news. But, you know, John had made his mind up. John liked the idea that this working class lad had come up from nowhere and done all these things and sort of went along with it, you know. That was John, though, you know. He'd make his mind up and do something about it. And he'd repent at leisure, which he did later <laughs> He did repent. And why do you repent at leisure? I like that. Yeah. Why do you think that they separated from Klein? They all sort of broke with Klein in 73, 74. Yeah. 
What do you know what happened there? I think he was taking. They thought they may be wrong. He was taking more than his share of them. I think they resented that, and um, they just thought, "But we don't need him anymore. We're not going to be performing as a group. You know, we just need." Lawyers to defend our rights. Well, that's what Paul said in like seventy. He's, yeah, he you know, did. You, he made the point. Yeah, so I think they they came around to agreeing with Paul that uh, they didn't actually need Alan Klein. They needed good lawyers for all of them to get together and share whatever they all do equally, and that's what they got. And uh, Alan Klein was um, they just they just didn't like him. Finally, in truth. So I'd like to end this interview with a little bit of Ray's own story. Ray underwent a terrible battle with COVID, but he got through it. He's recovered and is as productive as ever. But I'll leave it to Ray to tell his story. Last time we spoke, I'd come back from COVID, had six months in hospital, come back from COVID, full of confidence, because I, I could walk again for the first time in, in months. And I fell yeah. over and slapped my face onto the floor, <laughs> onto the pavement, and they called the ambulance and took me back to the hospital. Uh, anyway, they fixed me up, and I hadn't broken anything, thank God, and I hadn't sort of damaged my brain. And I'm fine since then. I'm, I'm just, you know, it takes a while to get over COVID. It takes a, quite a while, because you're just, I mean... I'd lost nearly two stones. I lost a stone and a half, and I'm very thin anyway. And I was weak, but I'm I'm fine now. And um, I reckon I'm 75% back to what I was before I ever got the illness. So I'm a good example. And I think the hospital are really, really pleased with me because I'm one of their successes, one of the early ones. Because what they don't tell you when you're in hospital with these things is that people are dying all around you. I had no idea about this. And it wasn't until I got back and began reading the bulletins that my wife had sent out to my children every night that I realized that I'd been hanging on by a thread and I never knew. Mainly I was unconscious. But I'm fine now. I'm better. And I'm back to work. I've written a play, you know, called Devoted. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, I wrote a play called Devoted for the BBC. The BBC Mm -hmm. still do um, radio plays all the time. They have a huge following. You'd be surprised how many people listen in their cars and things or sitting at home or whatever they're doing. I told the story of what had happened to me, how I was one of the very early ones to be unlucky enough to get COVID. Probably in the supermarket, I was, even then I was frightened of it and I was going, I was covering my face and everything and hardly going out, but I still got it. And I had six months, um, I had three months in a coma and I have no memory of any of that. And then three more oh, wow. months, and then three more months to get over. But I, I still couldn't walk when I came out of hospital, you know, because when you've been lying down for six months, you can't walk. Yep. All kinds of things yep. happen to you. I got better. So anyway, I wrote it as radio play, and got a huge response. I, I was surprised. I didn't we get think we get so much, but we did. There's hundreds of Facebook messages and hundreds of emails, and and it was kind of nice because I felt it was my job to tell the world: just be careful, for God's sake, look after yourselves, don't go out without a mask. Don't go into crowds. Don't do all these things because we end up, as India is now finding out, that people that um, a lot of people get ill and a lot of people died. And I think in the U.S., it's a huge amount of people who've died. And oh God, yeah. In England, it's 150,000 about, 
in India, it's going to be, I don't know, half a million because they're just dying all the time and they don't have the resources that the US and the UK have. So that's my story about getting COVID. And I did it as a radio play called Devoted. Hugely successful. I'm, I'm kind of pleased, you know. Well, congratulations. Thank I you. mean, even the title and the description of it is so emotional. I mean, it sounds incredible. Well, I chose the title because that old Everly Brothers song, Devoted to You, that written by Felice yeah. and Bill O'Brien, um, I thought the nurses and the doctors were totally devoted to saving lives. And when I met one of the nurses outside on the street, because we don't live, we live about a mile from the hospital, and she has to walk past here every day on the way to on the way to hospital, you know. I bumped into her. I didn't know who it was, and she called out my name, and I thought, who's that pretty young girl talking to me? <laughs> and my wife said, it's Hannah, don't you remember? I said, no, I don't remember, because I'd been wow. unconscious the whole time. And we got to talking, we both welled up with tears, and because um, she'd saved my life. I said, well, look, you saved my life, Hannah. And um, wow. that was very moving. And she said, well, I wish we could have saved everybody else. But they were oh, devoted, gosh. totally devoted, which also was my wife, Plum. She was devoted to. She came when they let her. They couldn't, she couldn't come for two months. And when they let her come, she came every day um, for the, the other four months that I was in hospital. And the children came when they could come. It's a weird thing, you know, to be so near to dying and not knowing anything about it. Because if I had died, I wouldn't have known. Because they put me, as soon as I got into hospital, they put me into an induced coma. And that was it. I had dreams all the time, incredible dreams, which I can now remember distinctly, all of them. Well, a lot of them. Wow. That's, yeah. that's amazing. I was going to ask you. That's quite frightening. A lot of them were either locked in somewhere or locked out of somewhere. It's quite frightening. Anyway. Oh, no. So that was that. Oh, that's terrifying. Last time we talked, you said uh, that you wanted to let people know so that they would know that you could get over this. Yeah, you know, that this absolutely. Was, you know, that it wasn't like one or the other that you got it and, and you died or else that you didn't get it and you were okay, that you could actually get it, get sick and get through it. Yes, and we all now have the vaccinations. I've had two vaccinations, although they weren't sure I even needed it because I reckon I probably have great antibodies but just in case <laughs> just in case right so they gave me that and my wife's going to get a second one this week and the the numbers are falling rapidly in the uk because of the yes. of the vaccinations and things but unfortunately we can't vaccinate the entire world all at, all at once but anyway i i got better by miracle you got better. did i tell you why i got better no well, I, I didn't know. I always I kept wondering, why didn't I die? Because people thought I was going yeah. to die. And I was being told yeah. I was going to die. One of the consultants at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital where I was taken, he rang me and they did some tests on my lungs when I got out. And he said, you've got extraordinary lungs, Ray. And I said, well, what does that mean? <laughs> and he said, well, I wished, used to be a military doctor with the British Army. And you have the best lungs I've ever known in anyone of your age. And I said, was that probably, did that help me? He said, you bet it helped you. I got the good lungs. And when I got a, a lung disease, which is what COVID really is, it came to my aid. So isn't that amazing? Thank goodness you had them. That's amazing. Lucky Sometimes man. you're just lucky. Yeah. Yeah, just very lucky. Well, so is it going to play on the radio again? Your pipe? It's, it's actually on the radio all the time. It's on a thing called BBC Sounds, which is that thing. And you get to it through your computer. You just look up. Okay. You look up Devoted Raycon on BBC, BBC Sounds, and you look up Raycon Devoted, and there it is. And you can sit for an hour and, and cry. <laughs> because, people, oh my because people cry when they listen to it, apparently. 
Um, wow. My, my wife cried. My wife cried and she's heard it two or three times and she always cries. So I said, well, don't, oh, don't, sure. well, don't listen anymore. I think that there's going to be a lot of stories that come out of COVID. Absolutely. Um, you know, and so I hope, I hope people really tune in because really understanding what went on will be really, really important. So yeah, yeah. I look forward to listening. Thank you so much for spending all this time with me. I feel like I've got a really great take from somebody who was really there and knew all the Beatles. So thank you, Ray. This has been so wonderful. You're welcome. I was lonely without her. Can't stop thinking about her now. Every Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate or review it or send an email or follow One Sweet Dream Podcast on all social media. Until next time. Yes, I know that she loves me now. There is one thing I'm sure of.